I'm running this monkey for now, Frankenstein. I know I'd go from rags to riches. Why, a four-year-old child could understand this report. Run out and find me a four-year-old child. I can't make a head or tail out of it. Faravelli, you've got the brain of a four-year-old boy, and I bet he was glad to get rid of it. My fate is up to you. Remember when you were a kid, you'd wake up on a winter morning, maybe snow on the ground, you'd turn the news on. And that sense of euphoria you'd feel when you saw your school pop up and you realized you didn't have to go to school that day. I honestly thought I'd never be able to feel that feeling again as an adult. And then last week, they were like, Jack sick. We can't get any subs. We have to cancel YLS. And I felt it again. Might have been the greatest night of my life. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to your list. Sucks top 100. Tonight, it's 50 through 51. Uh, Jack. I know you've had a rough week, but thank you for taking one for the team and getting us a week off last week. How you feel this week? How's your list going to look? 50 through 50 for 41. I feel mildly better than I did last Wednesday, but still not great. Uh, this this will be, be a fun 10. I'm excited to see how this goes. Cody, you were here last week or two weeks ago. Um, I don't remember where anybody finished. I completely, I kind of just forgot the show existed for a little bit. I won. You won? Okay. That sounds about right. Um, this week, more of the same? Is it gonna be um, I like my list. I like my list. It depends on what everybody else will have them. There's, um, again, like we've learned on the show, you get participation trophies if you just don't talk about your scenes or don't, you're not excited about them. As long as they're on there, they get like you know a boost. Um, but I think I have a list that will you know keep the consistency. I think placement may hurt me. Things a little too high in your book, but I think you won't deny that the scenes are good. So yeah, we'll see. Co-host sucks. Looking for a producer for YLS, by the way, starting next year. You know, I'll, you'll be on the show as many times as you'd like next year. You just gotta click buttons sometimes. So yeah, he sucks. Hate him. Be careful. Hmm. Jake, I kind of hate yes. that you're on this panel. Wow. Okay. No, 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 no. Let me explain. Let me explain. You and I have been hanging out a lot on call, you know, on the air, behind, getting to know Absolutely. each other better. The more yeah. I hang out with you, the more I like you, Jake. I think we're That's becoming good. like closer friends. And I would agree. I yeah. enjoy spending time with you. But sure. the format of the show combined with the stuff you're bringing me just requires me to be mean to you constantly. I don't like being mean to you. I mean, I also don't like you being mean to me, but I just don't like it that there's really no substantial reason. It's more just that you have a weird taste in film and that just is like kind of different to yours. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yikes. Scott, we're back. Hey. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great. How are you? I'm doing all right. Let's get started. We're halfway through. <laughs> 50 through 48. Jack, start us off. All right. Uh, my 50, there were a lot of scenes from this film that I was considering, but 
the village raid at the very beginning of the Northmen, uh, I am your death, uh, the strike brother monologue, but I ended up going with the gates of hell, uh, battle at the end. Uh, my number 49 is the kiss of death from the Godfather part two. Uh, and my number 48, wait, what? Okay. Uh, my number 48 is what? the diner. Uh, just no one yikes it. And I was surprised. Uh, the diner from Pulp Fiction. Yikes. Figure. For this episode. Okay. Later. All right. The gates of hell. Uh, this scene is one, one hour, of, yes. uh, yes. Uh, this but scene is this. phenomenal. Uh, uh it uh the fact that okay so you uh it's in this massive volcano and most of it is one long tracking shot tracking amleth through the volcano as he battles fielder uh his uncle who killed his father and it's the perfect uh payoff to everything we've seen so far the sheer brutality in the scene is just oh it's it's, it's marvelous and i love uh Alexander Skarsgård in this film and specifically in this scene he is giving his absolute best uh love this film and I could watch this scene anytime it's fantastic the kiss of death from the godfather part two I honestly thought this was going to get yikes uh but that's okay this scene is phenomenal this is the turning point uh for Michael and Fredo where Michael uh finally uh confronts fredo after realizing that he was responsible uh for uh the attempt uh or he was at least partially responsible for the attempt on his life earlier in the film and they're in this massive hall with a bunch of other people i can't remember what uh it's been a while since i've seen the scene but uh i can't remember the exact reason everyone's there but it's uh he goes up to him uh kisses him <laughs> full on the lips and says i know it was you you broke my heart and Fredo realizes in that moment he's a dead man and it's one of uh the I, I've only seen the film one time but that scene has I've thought about it day and day again it's incredible all right um Northman great scene uh I it is I mean it's a newer movie uh but I have no problem with it being on your list um just yeah it just it's just it the the way it builds up to this i mean everything that comes before it just pays off so well just that final battle between the two warriors and i like the movie has some some like fanciful magical elements um it's more grounded in reality um and i mean even the, the, there's no like direct like magic or fantasy stuff going on in the fight but just the look and the feel of it gives you that vibe to it. It feels like something out of Thor, Lord of the Rings or something. Just with all the, you know, the, the fire and the lava and everything. Great scene, great fight fight scene. Uh, Godfather 2, The Kiss of Death. Um, yeah, another, again, this, you only put one from each movie. This isn't the movie, the scene I would have picked for Godfather 2. Um, but still a great scene. Uh, I like how they're there and I it's the, um, it's New Year's Eve party. With the reason they're there, they're there in, the, in Batista's uh, palace. And it's him being ousted uh, as this is going on. So you have like this big political drama going on around like this very personal family drama. And I just thought that's really cool. So uh, it's a, that's, that's a, again, like I said, not my Godfather 2 scene, but it's Godfather 2. So you really can't go wrong. And your 48 was like, so we'll go on to Cody for 50 through 48. 
just to make sure, Jack, the what diner scene are you thinking of? Because uh, Michael has a very the the one that finishes the film. Okay, so you can talk about that minus completely in the beginning. So, okay then, uh, the diner from uh, Pulp Fiction. Uh, this is, uh, uh, I also didn't think uh, I'd be talking about this today but that's okay this scene is phenomenal the uh the back and forth between tim roth and samuel jackson in this scene is fantastic you get uh, another great 20 uh is he healed 23 or 25 17 i'm blanking on the verse right now you get another one of those monologues from samuel jackson and it's great uh the uh the standoff between um between the four of them uh pumpkin honey bunny and uh travolta and uh Samuel Jackson. Uh, yeah, Vincent, thank you. Uh, is It's a masterclass in screenwriting, and I can't, uh, I could honestly put this film on any day and this scene uh, clearly my standout. Uh, this is one that, I mean, it's, it's a good pick, solid pick. Honestly, as far as the, uh, the, the scripture reading goes, I prefer this to the the first time he goes through it, um, I just love the payoff and uh, the uh, just him actually like working out. Like at first, like he says, it's just something I said, but then he starts to find meaning on it. And he kind of like, you know, breaks it down and deconstructs it. I, I just love that so much. I just love the way it's shot, you know, the way, you know, it's her on the counter and him on the ground and um, how uh, Vince just shows up and like he's there and he's got the gun on him. He's like, Fitz, put that gun away. You know, just just the, just the framing of that shot of how it's it's, it's almost like you know similar to like the end of Reservoir Dogs with the with the standoff. Um, but I think it's just you know you said great uh, great writing, great acting. Tim Ross, fantastic in it. Um, just you know uh, him just kind of kind of having the wind taken out of his cells by you know looking into the face of this guy who is everything he thinks he is and everything he wants to be. Um, but he realizes that he's kind of just a fraud in that moment as he's watching, you know, Samuel L. Jack's kind of break his life down. Um, so yeah, really solid pick on that one as well. Uh, so now we go over Cody for 54 through 48. Uh, just to clear there, I'm a dumbass, not from Pulp Fiction at all, from another Tarantino movie. Uh, <laughs> um, but on that note, I'm glad we at least brought it up so you can talk about it because we were. Uh, so my number 50 is The Basement in Zodiac. Uh, my number 49 is The Hallway Fight in Inception. And then uh, my 48 is The Opening to Scream. I have that already. Okay. Um, so my 50, uh, Basement in Zodiac. I, 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 have, I have a problem. Sometimes when I watch some of these movies, like... I like them a little too much, and I don't. I, I think I have to like admit a problem because like this movie is really, really good, but it's super dark and twisted at the same time. So like liking it beyond that point um, is bad. But this scene, I there's a there's a few scenes that you instantly think of when you think of Zodiac, and I think this is like the clear like one of the clear ones that popped to your head. Besides like that opening, like the the driving the car and the shot, I think that's one that you think of, but. When Robert goes to the guy's house and like, like talking about the movies and the uh, the most dangerous game and like walking through all the things and brings up the point of the posters and the guy's like, I draw all the posters, they're all mine. 
and he's like, his obsession with it has led him, basically have drawn him into the one place that could possibly be face-to-face with the guy, and he doesn't know or anything. And when they travel down to that basement and the conversation just keeps going, and how it's shot with the lighting and just, like, how freaked out he is, like, by the situation, he's like, you can go. And basically what ends up happening, and then he ends up running out of the how when he gets to the door and it's locked and the guy just stands there and like it has such tension it has it builds up so much i think it's brilliant um a 49 and uh hallway fight if there's like an obvious one to like put in for here i love inception i didn't love inception for a long time because i thought it was this like too complex movie when i was in college and drinking way too much but when I discovered it in life, a lot I enjoy it a lot more now. Um, and I think this hallway fight is just what they're able to achieve. Again, you'll never be—I'll never be one of those people that get on here and be like practical, like sets and designs and what they're able to create and blah blah. I normally don't care. Certain movies, it's more impressive. I love how it's shot, and to f- figure out that it was actually shot that way is incredible. Like what they're able to achieve with the stuff. He's a he's a master craft at what he does, and this is what I know how Kirk personally feels about Nolan past like twenty uh, two thousand eight. I think I don't think he's a big fan of most of his films, and I'm kind of the same way to be honest with you. But Inception, I think, is by far his best work. I think Inception is absolutely a masterpiece, and I love what it's able to create in this uh, hallway fight. Um, uh, and then the opening to scream. Uh, Again, not a. Oh, I guess uh, Jack also had the hallway fight. So yeah, no, you can I won't. Talk about I won't add too much to it. You, uh, you basically so. covered it. It's a brilliantly choreographed fight scene. It's one of my favorite things to look at the behind the scenes of how they did it. And uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt uh, is just so good in this film. But it's uh, this this scene's just so much fun. Uh, Cody basically covered everything I wanted to say. Uh, you can move on. So I'm pretty good at those things, Jack. Um, opening to Scream. Uh, they've been able to recreate the scene <laughs> in every Scream movie and parody it to death. But at the time of what they were able to achieve with this opening, creates everything. That, now, again, 96, I was young. I did not get the like overly hype that Drew Barrymore cast in this film, and everybody thinks she's going to be the star, and she dies in the first ten minutes. Didn't know any of like that's not where I and I understand at the time that would be a massive thing to see, but the phone call, the su- suspense, the popcorn, the entire creating of the world that he builds in this opening and playing playing into the horror elements and having that stuff. I think it's one of the most brilliant openings. The new Scream that just came out, uh, when they were doing the, the the new one, I was like, even, it's nowhere close to the first one, but it's still impressive that they can still try to like maneuver and make this scene still as tension-filled as it was the very first time you saw it. So again, I think Scream's been played out a little bit, but when the first time, I think it just still holds up, and like, it's brutal, it's it it. I mean, at that age, if you're a teenager or anything, like the staying home alone and the phone rings, that does, does, I gave me anxiety for a long time. So I think it's just a brilliant number. Oh, and 
Uh, yeah, this is my 65. Um, yeah, I mean, doing a, like a cold open like this in a horror film like wasn't a new thing when Scream came out. Uh, but somehow this does feel like the most iconic one for a lot of the reasons that Cody mentioned. Um, you know, sort of the Hitchcock thing of making you think that someone is the star of the movie and then they die early on. Um, and yeah, Cody said the word brutal, which... Um, is one of the things that always surprises me about this scene is because you think of Scream as being, oh, you know, it's the fun sort of satire of horror movies and, um, you know, it's in on the joke and all this stuff. But it's still a super, like, brutal, bloody, like, horror movie through and through. And, like, her basically, like, getting murdered and, like, crawling on the ground and then hanging there in front of her, like, her parents as they get home and she's, like, freaking hanging from the tree is like a really haunting image honestly in a movie that you kind of think of as being oh it's a lot of fun and of course it is um but um yeah that you know speaks to Wes Craven obviously his strength in and, you know in, in doing real horror um and along, I, along with the fun stuff I think just even with the voice change and everything that they do like how it keeps you just like calm like it could be a friend playing a prank and then the immediate now it's in like every film like horror movie that wants to set that element but when that voice changes the very first time we're just like holy like it's it still has that i watched it i watch it every halloween it still has that exact same effect for me so. and in retrospect it also kind of uh there's some nice foreshadowing because they one of the questions he asks is about like who was the killer in Friday the Thirteenth, and it's like, oh, it's Mrs. Voorhees, and then they they riff directly off of that in Scream Two, uh, yeah. because Billy's mom ends up being the killer. So, right. uh, fun fun little uh, fact there. Uh, Zodiac. I rewatched this. I hadn't seen this in a long time. I rewatched it at the beginning because you guys all have a lot of Zodiac scenes in this on this list, um, and I know everybody always talks about this scene. It's a good scene, but what surprises me is how fast it goes. Like, you know, you're talking about the tension builds up. doesn't have a ton of time. Like, he's down there, and he's looking at stuff. The guy's like, hey, I, you know, whatever, and then he just leaves, and he's gone. So I was kind of taken aback by, for all the hype this scene gets, how just kind of like they breeze right through it. Um, not a bad scene, um, but again, like I said. I, I think was, that's based on the movie of where it's like, because throughout the entire movie, it's the hunt, and he feels like right then and there that's it. Like that, and I think that it ha this scene does not work solo. It will, it only works if you watch the whole film. With oh, absolutely, it. yeah, yeah. In the context, yeah. But I mean, like you know, when people talk about this scene and how like how suspenseful it is, and how you know, just how like you're just sweating the whole time. Like I didn't feel like I had time to like sweat or worry because it just was like over before you even got a chance to think about it. Uh, number forty nine, Inception. Yeah, I mean, I. Everybody knows I don't love no like later Nolan, um, but Inception is not a bad movie. I, it's not one that I rave over like a lot of people do, but I think there's it's got you know good things about it. It's Hallway Fights one of it. Um, I think when he gets, I think this is it's cool when uh, Nolan kind of gets out of his way and does you know out of like the really like overly cerebral stuff and just has fun with it. And I think this is a cool scene, cool effects. Um, so no, I'm not going to shoot you down for having that scene. And then Scream opening. Uh, yeah, the the Scream franchise completely played out. Just it, they have nothing left to say or do. Stop, stop making these movies. They're a pathetic parody of themselves at this point. I'm but really excited for the next one. <laughs> that that said, I mean, it just it's it, like I'm so like if I if I look at this scene now in 2022, I hate it because I'm just so sick of it because it's just been done to death and parodied. And like I said, now it's just like a pair. They're they're parodied themselves. 
So just, I'm just so over it. But going back to 1996, when I saw this for the first time, like it was crazy. Like you said, like you just you didn't expect Drew Barrymore to die. The idea, the whole meta element was not like again another thing that's completely. I, I never want to hear anybody talk about scary movies in movies again because I'm so sick of them. It's just not funny anymore. Fun, but it was so cool. Like to, to just doing that. Like okay, we're gonna make a scary movie about scary movies where the uh, the, the the killer you know is like kind of obsessed with this stuff. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think like I said, looking at the context of just this movie, great opening, great scene. Uh, Jake, it's your turn. All right, my number 50. I think it should be all right. We'll see. Um, we haven't had – no one's picked this uh, opening credits scene. I'm very curious um, if anyone will. But I've got one, um, the opening credits to Drive. And uh, 49 is the – funny enough, I also have an Inception scene. Uh, Ariadne's first shared dream from Inception. And then 48, the opening montage to Train Spotting. You choose life, choose life, one one essentially. Um, so number fifty, yeah, the opening credits uh, to Drive. I remember watching Drive in twenty thirteen, um, and just being blown away by just the setup, like of this movie's like tone and aesthetic choices. This is pre everything is now retro eighties stuff that like Stranger Things has pretty much capitalized like its entire uh, show and ideas on. Um, but I just love the the idea of just setting it. Entirely in Ryan Gosling just driving through the city of LA while Kavinsky's Nightcore plays. Just good ass vibes um, and really just sets the tone and mood for the entire movie. Um, simple, it's like two minute opening credits. Um, and you just really feel like the tone and the uh, the mood that the movie's going for. And I just like that retro 80s sort of aesthetic uh, before it was beaten to death by so much uh, pop culture. Uh, 49, uh, Ariadne's first shared dream. Um, I had troubles picking. I wanted. I, I had multiple scenes I wanted to pick from Inception, but this is kind of the one that I really, I find myself re-watching the most. At this point, we're like 30 minutes in. Uh, Dom's trying to recruit Ariadne into his crew. Um, and this is finally we're actually getting like an explanation on what this movie is about because we've seen them perform you know, the, the the dream heist and all that sort of stuff. But this is we're finally being told how this happens, why this happens, and how it can be exploited. And we see through Dom and Ariadne how they're able to manipulate the dream world, the visuals and the way it's all presented. I know Kurt was talking about practical effects and the practical stuff is incredible and in how they do it. But there is some great CG in this movie. The reason it half the reason why it won visual effects at the Oscars, the way just the buildings and the whole just world just like flips on its on its side and goes upside down, the way that Ariane is able to manipulate the dream world and just shit that we all dream, funny, huh? pun intended, of doing in when we lucid dream and shit. And I just remember being like just absolutely obsessed with that idea and really just lays the, 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 the groundwork for what the movie is about. Um, and then 48, the opening montage, to train spotting um just one of those films that just opens the door and just kicks you right into what this movie is about it's the whole editing and the monologue that ewan mcgregor just gives about choose life choose a career choose a television just everything about that you go oh yeah and then completely goes on his side but why would you want to do that when you have heroin and just really funny and just the dark sense of humor that the movie has and also just sets up the characters the, the movie opens with him, um, him and uh, sick boy and spud being chased by police and then him crash into a car and you had like the everyone the main characters uh, title names show up in pretty much the perfect sort of representation of their personalities and character traits um with you know begbie and uh, simon and spud and uh 
and Tommy just all that sort of stuff. Them taking them having heroin, them playing soccer. It's just just gets you right into the pacing and the uh, just the the whole movie's just fun energy that I think Danny Boyle is such a um, an expert at. Um, so I really love this opening and it just and also just choose life. Uh, uh, Lust for life is just a banger song. I remember a huge huge fan of that song. I listen to it all the time. All right. Uh, opening a drive. Uh, yeah, that is a great scene. A great character introduction. Uh, he, I mean, he does. It's been a while since I said he. This is where he starts with the phone. And he's doing the whole thing like I, you know, I don't carry a gun. You have me for this. Does he? Does he do that at the beginning here? That's the opening, but I'm specifically talking about just the credits. Okay, that's, so you're not talking about like the drive scene. No, okay. not the heist that they perform at the beginning. Okay, all right. Um, Okay, I thought we were talking about that. So <laughs> I didn't go back and rewatch that, so I really can't speak to. I, I thought you were talking about the actual, like, actual, like, scene of the drive. So I mean, we can uh, let's just say it is. Let's just say it is. It's fine. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I love that. Like, I love just. The, I love the the, the the sound design of that. Um, you know, him driving the car around. Like, I love how he has the baseball game on, and he has, he's listening to it, and then he goes and pulls in the parking lot, and as the game is ending, and he uses that as like his kind of like his his cover. Um, so great. I'll go back and watch the credits because I honestly don't remember much specifically about the credits uh but i'll take a look at that uh inception yeah same thing i'll say same thing about this i did the other one um cool concept and just the way they, they do it now uh i mean now it's kind of been like i think about it i think about dr strange that's not this movie's fault <laughs> um but like because dr strange kind of ripped it off uh but no it's cool like and again the, i get first time seeing that and like oh this is what's happening and you know them you know kind of like walking through and it's great i hate exposition in movies like it's usually such a bummer and i think this is such a, a really good way to explain what's going on like you know in conversation but also visually showing what they can do um so yeah another good one and train spotting i have not watched this yet but i watched the opening scene and i thought it was great um just like you said how they drop you in like almost like mid-sentence like as soon as it starts he's talking and he's on the run and they're playing lust for life which is again like you said great song a great choice for the scene um and just the just the frenetic energies i think it's like the this is a good example of like the best of what uh danny boyle does with the the movement the camera work and the music and everything coming together uh the dialogue uh so this made me want to go and watch the rest of the movie i'm very interested to see it now so did its job as an opening scene uh so good start jake let's keep this up Scott, right. let's move on to you. Fingers crossed. Okay, number 50. Uh, we're going to have a couple endings to start. Uh, I have the ending scene from uh, Robert Altman's Nashville. Uh, 49, I have the caravan scene from Whiplash. Uh, yikes. Okay. And 48, I have the birth of a nation scene from Black Klansman. Okay, 50. Um, Nashville, the ending. I guess spoilers, definitely, if you haven't seen Nashville. If you haven't seen Nashville, you definitely should, because it's an incredible film. Um, but uh, basically, the whole movie is kind of this mosaic of characters, um, and it's all sort of swirling around the politics of the 70s and this fictional candidate who's running, and it ends up in this political rally um, where Barbara Jean, who's the big country singer played by Ronnie Blakely, is singing and a man comes out of the crowd it's at a political rally again a man comes out of the crowd and shoots her and um as she's you know on the stage basically dying she gets carried away and there's a little bit of a like you know people kind of freaking out and unsettled 
And then another singer just steps up on the stage and starts singing this other like gospel type song um, called It Don't Worry Me. And it's supposed to be like this hopeful moment of like, oh, we just had this horrible tragedy um, and now everybody's coming together and everybody starts singing the song and then the movie ends. But um, it's not really. It, in, fa in fact, it's, you know, kind of a very cynical way to end the movie, in my opinion, and actually kind of ahead of its time. It, it really reminds me in a way of like the way that celebrity culture and everything, we respond to tra tragedies like this nowadays. And you think about like the Gal Gadot, like Imagine video and that, you know, crap that happened um, during COVID and, uh, you know, the, the way that people respond to these tragedies, we don't know how to, you know, give them the appropriate weight and gravity or to actually, you know, not not to get too political into it, but we don't know. We're not interested in actually solving the root of the problem. Um, it's more. Um, <laughs> it's more about, uh, you know, making people feel good when maybe we don't need to feel good. Um, and so I thought this I think this scene is really ahead of its time. Um, and really sort of haunting. 48, Birth of a Nation from Black Klansman. Yeah, let's move on to something that's not political at all um, with this scene. But I was um, muted for Nashville, so I didn't know what part you were on, so I don't want to no, miss I the cue. That's my bad. I thought you were moving me on because I was trying to talk about politics, kind of. No, you can talk about whatever you want, but when you no, said politics, gonna... I was like, Black Klansman, <laughs> you can <laughs> yeah, talk yeah. about this. Fair enough, so. fair enough. No, so this is the scene, and it's actually sort of cross-cutting between two different scenes. And in one scene, the clan members are watching The Birth of a Nation, of course, the D.W. Griffith movie, um, at the initiation ceremony. And it's cutting between that and um, Harry Belafonte playing this sort of Black activist who's speaking to a group of mostly young Black people. Um, and the contrast is just like amazing of, you know, again, the clan members like laughing and hooting and hollering. And then Harry Belafonte is giving like some history of the birth of a nation and the fact that it was screened at the white house. And the president said, you know, this is history written in lightning and like, didn't, you know, basically didn't um, disclaim the movie or didn't, uh, you know, say anything negative about it. In fact, was quite complimentary of it. Um, and so the, again, the contrast of that and, you know, the sort of scary um, enthusiasm of the um, the clan members and then, you know, the the black activists um, really having this sort of inspirational moment. And, and it ends up with like the contrasting, you know, the clan members are all chanting white power while the uh, Harry Belafonte and um, all the young black people who are with him are chanting black power. And it's just, it really, it's a great, like, you know, again, contrast and Spike Lee is, um, you know, so great at these sort of kinetic, like cross cutting, the kinetic sort of cross cutting between um, the two um, scenes. And obviously, like the it's it's easy to tell the the differences, the contrast and everything. But um, he's a, he can be a straightforward filmmaker. And um, I think this is just a, a scene that really you know, ram rams his, his thought process down your throat in a good way. Um, I like that it's aggressive and confrontational. Okay. Um, Nashua, I went back and rewatched this because uh, I haven't seen this movie. This is the one I haven't seen in a while. And like you said, the movie, the thing I love about the movie is how it's just all these different characters like coming and going throughout through their own story. 
Um, so when I watched the ending, I was like trying to remember like who everybody was and what they were doing. So I don't think I grasped like the, the complete like everything that was going on. I do love that I, if I remember correctly, the woman who ends up getting to sing at the end, she had been trying to like make her like find yeah. her like get her voice out there. So like it's, it's this thing like she just been kind of wandering through Nashville like trying to like get her find her break. And then it just happens where there's this just big, like, there's tragedy, and like everybody's panicking. They're just basically handing the microphone to anybody, and she's just there. And she takes it, she grasps that too. So I think that's got like really interesting how that, that kind of like finishes off her storyline. And everybody, you know, everybody else is there. And like I said, I don't exactly recall like everybody else's connection, but it seems like it all kind of comes together. Yeah. Um, it's still completely chaotic, just like the rest of the movie. Again, like, I, I think that's a positive to it. That's what I like about the movie. Um, biggest downside for me in this scene is the music because I don't like this music at all. I don't think it's necessarily supposed to be good, um, but long. it's just like it goes on for a long time. But um, the scene itself, it's like the way it wraps up the story, is really good. Um, 49 gets nice, 48 Black Klansman. Yeah, I love what I love about this is the Harry Belafonte part. I think he plays this so good, him telling the story. And like the way they they use the movie as you know he's telling like the historical um, aspects of it, and then you see people who are still actually watching it and celebrating it. Um, the thing that bums me out about it though, like it's just it's it's so well done, except that Spike Lee and you know perfect Spike Lee fashion, no faith in his audience to get the point. He has to have that one woman just screaming the dial the the, the subtitles to birth of a nation the whole way through and it's like annoying but not in like the way it's supposed to be annoying. it's like you, i don't need her reading the movie to be i understand what's happening so that's the one thing that agitates me about this but the rest of it's really well done um so that is number 48 so we're going back to jack gloves come off everybody gets the fight fight All time, right. jack let's do it yeah 47. uh my 47 is sloth from seven yeah, this scene uh, honestly kind of haunts uh, haunts me sometimes because it is the most jarring moment in the film for me where uh, uh, Brad Pitt, uh, Morgan Freeman, they arrive at this apartment. Uh, they as soon as they enter, uh, it is there's just dozens, if not like more uh air fresheners just hanging from the ceiling uh great atmosphere in the in the scene and then you see the victim tied to his bed and uh it's the most grotesque uh scene in the film and you believe he's dead he's uh almost uh, almost just a corpse uh and uh and you uh at the end of the scene uh the one cop leans in uh, and says you got what you deserved and then at that moment the corpse chokes uh like chokes to life and it's uh just the most <sighs> that scene uh just really impacted me when i saw it. i know that there's the what's in the box scene it's the obvious pick but when i think of seven this is the first scene of the film i think of this is the scene that has stuck with me uh, since I saw it the first time, and it's the scene that sticks with me every time I see it. Uh, brilliant moment. Yeah, there are a lot of scenes from this movie uh, that you put on this list, but I think this is a really good one. 
I remember seeing this for the first time. Uh, all-time great jump scare. Uh, when he leans over and he just the, the, the body that that just hideous like Deacon, but there's no way that could be a living person. It's somehow it is. Um, so uh, the scene after is really good when they're talking about like his condition and everything. Um, but even before that, it's so well shot when they're coming in and they have the, the lights on the guns. Uh, it just has a great David Fitcher scene. You know, like you said, the way just the 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 set design of the the uh, the air fresheners hanging down and. Just, just the, the the detail that goes into it. So, um, yeah, great, great scene from a great movie. Uh, everybody else on sloth. Um, Seven is one of my favorite movies. Um, I may have a scene from this movie on my list. It may even be tonight. Who knows? Um, but uh, yeah, this this is definitely a great one to pick if you're talking about strictly the like murder scene sequences. I think this is the best one just because of the um, the jump scare, like we're saying, uh, because you have a certain expectation and then Fincher does such a great job of throwing you off. And it's more horrifying that the person is even alive uh, as opposed to being dead almost. So um, it's a nice sort of uh, contrast there. But um, yeah, it's, it's a good pick and an amazing movie. Um, yeah, I think this is a very effective scene. Probably the most effective. Maybe the second most effective scene for the movie. I don't want to um, spoil it, but like, the ending is like the most memorable thing about the movie. Um, yeah, like the whole Slav set up the, the apartment, the way that the fact that he's just like, he's kept alive. Like he can't even die. He looks like a corpse. You think it's, and then that jump scare, really effective. Um, yeah, really good stuff. What you expect from Fincher. I think the re the stuff I love from Seven is not this. Like this stuff is cool. It's like, it, it's interesting how they do the deadly sins, how they're able to create, and how each one is done. But I like the character like work between Freeman and Pitt that makes these like this is just like the like the thing to move them along. Like whatever it is, it's 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 a cool setup. It's cool like stylistic and well, what Fincher's brain is basically able to unrant, like show everything in the slaw like that. I think that's cool. But I think there's like three scenes from Seven that I would consider higher than this. Um, I just, especially if you're going to, this, by you pick the best death scene of the people. That's not the question. But like, there are scenes like, yeah, I can think of just one word that like brings like instantly if i hear that word i know exactly what movie you're talking about so I know exactly um, yeah i think those are just more because of how much this case has like affected these two people and yeah so eh, it wouldn't be my choice and it wasn't because it wasn't on my list <laughs> all right uh jack 46 all right my 46 is anton ego's review in ratatouille yikes yeah <laughs> Kill me. Uh, my 45 is Sean's monologue from Goodwill Hunting, specifically the one in the park. Uh, or he says that's my 40, that's my 46. So, all right, this scene is just absolutely heartbreaking every time I see it. Uh, uh, Robin Williams, uh, is talking to uh, he's talking to Matt Damon uh, and he says when you uh uh basically uh when he came into his office the other day and uh criticized uh or like talked uh, talked about his painting it uh really 
affected him. And then when he uh, goes into, he just digs into Matt Damon. He starts digging into Will and saying, uh, uh, you've probably, I, I can't think of the, the line, but he, uh, he's, he's like, uh, but you've never uh, truly loved someone uh, before. And uh, you don't know, uh, and you got the whole, uh, the visiting hours don't apply to you line. It's truly a beautiful moment. I didn't rewatch this scene uh, before today because I thought Cody was going to yikes it, but uh, that's okay. Uh, yeah, Cody, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, um, heartbreaking is not the word I would describe from the scene. Uh, this is like a stand up and cheer moment, basically, because Williams has finally put Damon in his place. He basically sits there and goes through everything. He goes, you're smart. I'm not going to argue you're smart. But if I asked you, uh, uh, Michelangelo, you tell me his sexual orientation and his likes, his dislikes, what he did for a job before, everything about it. But have you ever been to the Sixteenth Chapel? Have you ever looked up? Have you ever smelled inside of it? He's like, oh, I could ask you about a female too. And you tell me your best types. But where you probably got laid a few times. But at the end of the day, you've never laid side by side with a girl and felt like rely on someone else. You've never stood in front of a woman vulnerable and told you. You're, you've never been told that you go to the, the, you go to the hospital after two weeks in a row. The doctors start realizing that your visiting hours don't apply to you because that's your everything in that room. So the things about you that I can read that I will never learn anything about you that I can't get from a book. But when you actually want to start being vulnerable and tell me about you, I'm all in. I'm a hundred percent. It's your move, Chief, and he stands up and walks away. It is literally one of the best acting performances from a character that has been slapstick basically his entire career, and he drops the mic and walks away. Watching this scene again, I wish I had it higher. I think this is the, one of the most powerful scenes ever because Damon has everything going for him, but he will never allow himself to put himself out there. And it pays off later on the line because when he basically goes like the whole that scene of I'm gonna go see a, uh, uh, about a girl, like he finally takes his advice. He finally because Damon every time somebody gets close to Damon, he pushes him away. And Williams is like, "You hurt me really bad," but at the end of the day, this is my last move. So I think it's an incredible scene. Yeah, no, this is a good. Uh... See, I would go with a different Goodwill hunting scene, and Cody may have it. Um, but <laughs> I have the other one. I do have the other one. I do but, have the other one. But no, um, yeah, this is good. Just uh, this, just to build up to their relationship, and then the way it kind of just he, like you said, Cody, he just shuts him down here. Like you have all this good for you, but here's what it's not. You know, and you think you can live off that, but here's why you can't. Um, so yeah, solid scene. Uh, Jake and Scott didn't have this. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I love this movie. It's just been so long since I've rewatched it. I, I, I'm the way Cody was describing the scene has made me really want to rewatch it. So I might watch it this week. I don't know. We'll see if someone else agrees and decides to uh, that we decide to watch it. But um, yeah, I do like. I mean, yeah, I do also agree that like this isn't a heartbreaking or devastating. Thing. This is like such a like triumphant 
moment for both Sean and Will, like the fact that he's finally able to break that wall and get to him and be like, this is how it's going to be. Like, you can say all this shit, but like, you need to tell me how you feel. And that sort of emotional uh, walls that Will has set up and the fact that Sean's able to really get to him and that. I think that really sets up the rest of the movie and that sort of relationship and not necessarily back and forth as the movie goes on, but sort of just their dynamic. And I think that really um, shows. And also just the simplicity of Gus Van Sant's directing, the way it's just one uh, camera movement and the way it just sort of just... That's all you need. That's all the the power that that scene needs, that the camera needs to give. And I do think it is a wonderful scene, but yeah, there is another scene also. It's great. I have only seen the movie once. Um, it wasn't like five-star amazing for me at the time like it is for a lot of people. So I need to go back and uh, watch it again, probably because, yeah, I, I also agree with Jake that um, hearing the description of it, it makes me really want to go watch the scene, if not the whole movie. Um, I actually think strangely enough i have a scene that maybe kind of gets at the same some of the same ideas slash themes as this um scene from what it sounds like tonight but cody's probably gonna laugh when it comes up because he doesn't even like the movie but we'll see all right uh that was 45 for jack so jack 44 all right my 44 uh this isn't getting yikes but it's uh silva's introduction from skyfall uh, yeah, no, this is easily uh, one of my favorite uh, villain introduction scenes in film. It's it's incredibly simple in the setup. Uh, James Bond tied to this chair in the middle of this massive room, and there's this elevator coming down uh, in front of him, like uh, 50 yards away. And out of it comes Javier Bardem's Raul Silva. And he goes into this monologue where he, he says... Hello, James. Do you like the island? Uh, and, he, and, he, uh, and he says, my grandmother had an island. Uh, nothing to boast of. Uh, you could walk along it in an hour. And he goes into this incredible monologue about uh, when the island was infested with rats and how his grandma uh, taught him how to get rid of them. And at the very end, he goes, what, what do you do with the, the drum? Uh, do, you, do you throw it into the ocean? Uh, bury it? Uh, bur burn the rats inside? No, you just let it be. And when there's only two rats left, you let them out into the wild and because uh, they don't eat coconut anymore. They only eat rat. You've changed their nature. And it brilliantly sets up the dynamic between uh, Silva and Bond as the two rats and uh, the two final rats. And, you've, and it pays off super well at the end uh, in, the, in the church. Just a brilliant introduction, brilliant monologue. And uh, Javier Bardem steals this movie in a single scene. Okay, um, not the Silva scene I would have picked, um, but again, not not a bad scene. Uh, I love Javier Bardem. He's he's the best Craig Vaughn villain, and it's not even close. Um, I've said this before. I think he out of the Craig movies, he's the only person who understood he was in a Bond movie. And, you know, like, was supposed to be having fun and not just be, like, dour and sad. Um, and this, he's, he's so good. I, I love the way it's shot with him just, like, walking towards him real slowly as he's telling the story, how long he takes to get there. And then once he gets there, just, like, the physicality and the way he's touching him and everything and, like, it gets real intimate. Um, yeah, he's great. Um, and, you know, this is a, a really, again, best character best villain introduction of the bond uh, or the craig bond films definitely um just yeah just uh, and again the way he tells that story 
and the way it applies to M and what he, and the way he, he kind of like is like Bond's so sure of you know his relationship with N and M and he's immediately breaking it down like here's where she lied to you here's where she lied to you here's where she lied to you do you still think that way um, and you see Bond like kind of like his facade falling so um, and that's the what that's what the Bond villains are supposed to do they're supposed to like penetrate that armor uh, everybody else on Silva's introduction is gonna fall. I just don't think it's a, knowing your criteria, one per movie, this is just not the scene from Skyfall that I would pick. And not the one featuring Silva. I think the, I mean, I, again, I don't know what's on everybody's list, but there's a scene where they stand far apart and there's a gun involved. That one is a lot more heavy-handed. I understand, like, the monologue and how he delivers it is really good, but I think you see how ruthless he really is, like, later on. So, overall, I just, yeah, I'm just, I'm just a little surprised. You know, I thought Caleb had everybody brainwashed to what the correct scene from uh, Skyfall was. Not me. Um, unpopular opinion. I don't really like Javier Bardem in this movie. Um... I think it, I just think his character is a little bit of like a standard sicko of the month. Like, I don't know that there's any sort of anything unique about this particular version of sicko. He's played, he had played a better sicko in his career at this point in No Country for Old Men. So, um, it just, it doesn't do anything for me, even though I really enjoy the movie. Um, I think it is one of the only things that holds me back about it. I would have definitely picked the scene at the government uh, inquiry or whatever, where M is giving her speech and then the shootout happened. I mean, that is like a chills scene, honestly, for me. And when I'm the computer screens change. Yeah, no. yeah, great. I'm sitting here wondering why I didn't have it on my list. But anyway, I, I, I don't fault the pick because I'm definitely in the minority, but he just doesn't do it for me in this movie. Um, I really like this scene actually. Um, this probably would is my favorite scene from the movie. I like Skyfall. I've never been like a massive fan of the movie, um, but I just think it's a like as what Jack was saying. Like it's a, a an incredible introduction to this character. The fact that we don't get a close up on him until the end of his story, we just see him from a distance, and as he comes closer and closer, he just tells the story. I think the story is also really good and really is like what the movie is about, and the fact that like changing creatures and you know, in this metaphor you know people's nature of killing um i think is really good and i yeah i think it's a probably my best my favorite scene from the movie all right uh that was 44 so now we go back over to cody for cody's 47. uh my 47 is hit me from raging bull um I rewatched this uh, with Tim when I went up to Wisconsin, and I realized how much I enjoy this movie <laughs> overall. And I think uh, it's definitely the relationship of Jake LaMotta, basically, and his brother. And this is before any of the other shit he finds out about his brother happens. But they're sitting there. He's talking about future fights that he might not get. He's like, you just want him to take the hints. And he's like, hit me. I'm not going to hit you. No, hit me. And they go back and forth, and he's like, Wrap it around your hand. It's like a brotherly thing. Like, you're not afraid to hit, and he just keeps, like, punching him. But there's also, like, foreshadowing in the scene that, like, hints at the downfall of his brother. But this just proves how much of a damaged character Jake LaMotta really is. 
He doesn't know when to stop. He doesn't know when to back off. He doesn't know when the thing's been pushed too far. Everybody around him knows that he needs to stop or he needs to back off. But Jake keeps like pushing forward every time. And his brother's just beating the shit out of him. But he's like, I don't want to. But he's also scared of him at the same time. I think it's a very complex scene, basically, of it because it foreshadows the end of the film, but it also shows like him at that point why he's never able to achieve what he's able to achieve because he's always in his own way and he doesn't see it. But he also is so blinded by everything around him. He doesn't know that his wife doesn't love him currently. He doesn't know that his brother is like messing around with his wife. Like he doesn't realize like because he's so caught up in his own world. And this is like a perfect indication scene of why that is. Yeah, it's tough to pick a scene from this movie and um I mean, I know it's completely a thing, but I probably would have picked one of the boxing scenes, uh, probably the, the last Sugar Ray fight. But uh, as far as the two of them, it, it's hard to pick one scene because they all kind of like you said play off each other. So picking one scene is tough. It's a good scene. I mean, I think that whole. I think the early part of this movie, like the first act, uh, when like the, you know you're learning about them and he's meeting his, you know, he's with his old wife, he's meeting his new wife. Um, I think those are my favorite parts of the movie, like outside the boxing stuff. Those are my favorite parts of the movie. Um, and the part that, you know, the scenes of his apartment are really good. Again, like I said, it's just hard to pick one out of, uh, out of, out of the whole movie. And like I said, especially between those two, uh, everybody else on this scene from raging bull. I'll keep it uh, short. I haven't seen it. It's been way too long since I've uh, seen this movie. Um, Especially like a fantastic Scorsese thing. This is like one of his masterpieces. Um, I think it's a great scene. Um, and also just that like camaraderie. Well, not camaraderie, but just the dynamic between the two brothers is really good. Um, it's Yeah, it's been just way too long since I've seen it. Um, yeah, I don't really remember the scene because, again, I've only seen it once. I, of course, admire the movie a whole lot. It is not a rewatchable movie for me uh, because it is very disturbing um so, so i feel the same about taxi driver honestly but um so it you know it's not one that i go back to so i'm not as familiar with the scene i did watch it on criterion 4k uh from tim so that does give me so better that, i saw your review of that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, better, it's quality i can't argue with it anymore. Oh, no. No. all right uh so we did your 46 so let's go to 45. Uh, my 45 is the baptism scene from Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Uh, there's, don't worry, there's a baptism scene coming. It's not this one. Not yet. Uh, uh, I, I find this movie as one of the funniest movies that has ever been made for me. It just, it is overacting to a good degree. I don't think it overshines or goes beyond that point where it's too much. But these three characters, John Turturro, uh, George Clooney, and Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson. Um, they're basically in this whole thing. They're on the run, blah, blah. If you haven't seen it, I'm, you, what are you doing in this community? I don't know how you found this. Um, but we're, uh, they're all arguing the thing. John Thurk's like yelling at him. He's like, what? You stole from us. Like angry at thing. And then all you see is a bunch of people in white clothes start walking out of like the forest. Like walking for, And they're singing. One of the best things about this movie, too, is the music in this thing is just so, like, perfect to the movie. And it's, like, uh, back down to the river to pray. They're all singing it, and it, like, gets really loud. Well, they're all standing by, and Tim Blake Nelson 
wants to get baptized too. And he like jumps over there and gets baptized and he comes up and he's like, all my sins have been forgiven. Um, and even that Piggly Wiggly I knocked over in Yazzer is like, I thought you didn't do that. Well, it's been forgiven too. I am redeemed. And he like wants to get everybody saved. It's one of the funniest scenes for me. I record it all the time. Uh, I just think it's a brilliant scene to match the music plus like the pure comedy from Clooney, John Turturro, and Tim Blake Nelson. I think it's a brilliant scene. Yeah, Cohen comedies are real hit and miss for me. Um, Same. Same. Mostly because I like the overacting, specifically overacting from George Clooney, uh, isn't always something that I have fun watching. But in this movie, it just is so well done, the three of them. Uh, together, the chemistry between them and the dialogue and everything is so good. And yeah, this is a fun scene just because it shows you just how ridiculous they are, like how just susceptible they are to whatever, like whatever comes along. It's like, yeah, that's our thing now. And how quickly they get sucked into he gets sucked into this. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's been a while. I can't comment too much on it, to be honest, because it's been a while since I've watched it. I don't remember a lot of the details. Um, but yeah, like you're saying, just see, like, well, you lied about that. Well, that's been forgiven too. Um, and just like, again, like how, like, most religious man ever. Yeah, he is just on board 1000% immediately. It's, it's, it's so great. Um, everybody else on the baptism for brother. Um, listen, I do not want to get kicked out of this house if I say anything bad about oh brother, we're out there. Um, so I'm not going to. Don't look at me like that. Um, um, <laughs> uh, this is the first Con Brothers movie I saw, and it's been way too long since I've seen it. I would like to rewatch it. Um, yeah, I do like the scene. It's actually really good. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like there's other things I like more from my brother, but that's just my opinion, man. Um, yeah, no. but it's a good scene. Good song as well. I like that song. Yeah, this is definitely my... If I were to pick a scene from this movie, this is it. Uh, it's... Uh, hilarious. Tim Blake Nelson is phenomenal. Uh, I love George Clooney's overacting in this film. Uh, and this, you know, this scene is just, I, I, I can't help but laugh every time I see it. Another one that's been way too long since I've seen. I need to check it out again. <laughs> All right. Uh, Cody, 44. Depending the scene he picked from this movie. I may talk about it. I may not talk about it. There's only one person that guaranteed to have a scene from this movie. Um, I went with the car scene from Prisoners. Uh, no. Uh, uh, the, <laughs> in, but like the one at the end or? When jo when he's outside the liquor store and he goes into him and oh, yikes. Okay. Assumed it was happening. So good. No, I love that. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, Jake, forty-seven. Uh, forty-seven. Uh, this is. I think I said last week that, oh, a couple weeks ago when I talked about the KOD scene from Carter. That's the shortest scene I have on my top one hundred. Don't think so. That's the case. I believe this is the shortest scene I have. It's only like a minute long, but it's really effective. It's the buses blue scene from In the Mouth of Madness. Figured. That was the case. It was um, this, it was close to being the answer. Yeah, right, yeah, close. absolutely yeah, for sure. Um, this is weirdly my favorite Carpenter film. I've just always uh, watched this every October. This is a movie that I just absolutely love, and the ideas that this movie is about. At this point in the movie, uh, Sam Neill, uh, John Trent, has left Hobbs End. Um, he's 
realize what's going on as far as the uh, the distortion of reality. And Sutter Kane, the writer, has given him his manuscript of In the Mouth of Madness, which is about the the, the world coming to an end, the apocalypse. And everything that happens in his books is coming true. And he realizes that this can't happen. He keeps throwing away the manuscript, but it keeps getting back to him. And he's on a bus and he's, he's sleeping and he wakes up and in his dream, he's right next to Sutter Kane. And Sutter Kane's like, I'm now God. And, and basically shows him the power that he has by saying, did you know my favorite color is blue? Cut to Sam Neill waking up from his dream on the bus. Everything is tinted blue. He realizes everything around him is blue. The way that film is just presented, it's just like the tint of the, the screen is blue. And that's when we have probably the, my favorite shot in the entire movie. Sam Neill screams like a maniac and everyone just like is just like jump like sudden, like, oh my God, what the fuck? But the guy and just the reaction, the, Sam Neill's face is just just perfect for me. Like when I just watch it, I'm going like, this is a man who's like losing his mind right now. And that shot at him just is absolutely hilarious, but also just really terrifying if you were in that same situation. I just think that's so effective in what it's trying to do. Um, underrated scene from Carpenter's films. He's made some great movies, and I think this one uh, is starting to get a kind of a, a nice little cult follow. I'm assuming Cody has just watched the scene because he's uh, got that reaction. I haven't seen the whole movie yet. Um, I, I might have seen like years ago, like decades ago. Um, I have like memories of some scenes, but I don't think I've seen it the whole way through. I want to, I'm very interested in it. And maybe if I have more context, I'd appreciate the scene more. Um, but like, you know, going back to like what I said about the, the basement scene Zodiac, it's such a, uh, it's over so quick. It's basically a dream. You know, he's, he screams right. and then he wakes up. So I yes. think it's, it's, it, to me, it was, you know, it was, what it was, it was, oh, it's a dream sequence. So I really didn't connect with it. Um, or see like anything really super exciting or special about it. But again, maybe if I watch the whole movie, I'll have more, I'll understand it better. Uh, anybody else see this movie? And do they have uh, anything to say about this scene? I definitely just saw a fan edit of this because where uh, it's like blue. You go to the first one on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he wakes up and he screams and it's like, I'm blue, I'm a deal. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. I lost it. And it just keeps repeating Sam Neill like during the stream like over and over. I'm all in for this being on this list after seeing that. That's when they should re-edit this movie and come out with It's brilliant. But no, I have not seen this movie. I haven't either, but I want to. Uh, first time I heard about this movie, Mike Hanley was talking about it on the uh, Top 100 Volume 2 Uh when that was happening and i thought to myself this sounds like a great fucking movie and i should see it and you know what i still haven't all right uh jake number 46. all right there are many great dinner scenes in film history um i think this is definitely my favorite one uh from it's the dinner scene from american beauty that is the scene where lester lashes out against um against carolyn and Bass is just like, you know what? I'm done uh, with your rules. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live. Uh, in the scene, he's he's left his job. He's got a new job at a fast food restaurant. Uh, shout out Blockbuster Video, Diamond Mine, and Ontal. That question got asked in round one. Um, and basically, it's at this point where, yeah, Lester's just basically sick and tired of having to conform to what society wants him to, to be. And he can now live and do what he wants to do. If he wants to drive a 1970s, uh, 
uh, Pontiac fiber, then he can. Um, if he wants to work out, then he can absolutely can and eat what he wants to eat. Um, and just the whole situation of what we want to see when we have these two like, completely different characters finally like, just lash out against each other. And especially from Lester's point of view, where Carolyn is such into the conformity of life and like we have to live by a specific set of rules and everything has to be perfect. And let's just like, let's just live our lives and not really worry about the sort of shit. And he constantly keeps asking, can you someone please pass me the asparagus? And no one will. And then at the point he just tells uh, Jane, uh, his daughter, to sit down, grabs the asparagus himself. And it's like, I'm sick and tired of pretending like I don't exist. Okay. And then Caroline just has this whole argument like, oh yeah, so it's got to be all about you, less, less, less. And then just ends it by just throwing it onto the wall and just silences both uh, Jane and Caroline. And it's like, don't interrupt me. And then to end it off, you have Lester going, and I don't think I'm the only one here. Uh, but I'm really sick and tired of this Lawrence Welk shit because Lawrence Welk is just playing throughout the dinner because Carolyn likes to have the music because she's always cooking. So I want to have the music, but I don't want to play him. And Lester's like, let's uh, let's change, let's um, alternate our choice in music every dinner, and just really great, just the really great family dynamic that you want to see when uh, when people argue. That's great. Another one. It's been a while since I watched it, uh, but yeah, it's a great just like breakdown of the family unit, like you said, like it's a. It has like that Norman Walk Rockwell feel to it, but then like behind the scenes, like each one of them has like their completely own thing going on, and you see it all just bubbled up to the surface. Um, I think it's a really well shot scene. I think it's a really well acted scene. Um, again, but like I said, it's another one I don't remember a ton of details on. Uh, everybody else, American Beauty dinner scene. Uh, seen it once. I remember this scene fairly well. Uh, good pick. Not on my list. I've never seen it actually. Um, I haven't seen. I've seen American Beauty once. I really want to revisit it. Um, I really did like it the first time I watched it. Uh, Rewatching the scene is just like a married couple that just has had it, but the 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 area in which they are that they've had it doesn't make sense because the music's playing, there's candles lit, their daughter comes in and they're just like going back in the most sarcastic way at each other. And when he keeps like asking for the dish and he finally gets up and like chucks it at the thing, like, or she interrupts him. He's like, don't interrupt me, honey. Like, it's like, it's like the most backhanded thing. It's, uh, it's insane. It's insane. I, I, this movie definitely deserves a rewatch. All right, uh, Jake, number forty-five. Okay, we haven't had a Spider-Man scene in a while, so we gotta we gotta bring back one. Spider-Man two, Spider-Man. I, I was gonna set it up, but it's the raindrops. It's the montage after he's uh, quit being Spider-Man. Um, yeah, raindrops keep falling on my head. I just put that. Just that's that's the scene. We we all know what, what, what when we say raindrops keep falling on my head. I love Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. I love how that song is used in that. But my introduction to the song and. The best way that the song has ever been used is in this movie. I know Kirk is right now dying because I just said that. Um, the way it just sets up the song, it just totally comes out of nowhere because you have this whole emotional scene where he gives up being Spider-Man. You have that whole dream sequence or that conversation he has with Uncle Ben and you're like, wow, this is such an emotional moment. And then this uplifting song of him just walking through college and then constantly tripping and you realize, oh, he's just doing this the entire day he puts on his glasses and then it's just like the day-to-day -day life of peter parker no longer spider-man he gets a hot dog and takes a big ass bite out of it while the police sirens are going um you got him at universally doing well 0.23 electron volts you got him fixing his bike just the whole sequence is played out so well he's finally catching up to being peter parker and then just to top it off you have him leaving college leaving uh 
living class. And then just Kirk Connors gives them a compliment. Excellent work today, Parker. Keep it up. And then one of the greatest freeze frames ever. Just him. Just a, it's, a, it's a small victory, but it feels so good for Peter at this point because he's been just beaten down by just everything in the entire movie and finally gets a victory like that. Um, and just that's how the, and the song just ends and it just fades to black and it's just like, you finally feel like he's getting somewhere. You know, being Spider-Man, it's done. Peter Parker, he's finally, he's getting a victory. Uh, even if it's small and something like just getting complimented by a professor, it feels great. And especially at this point when so much has been happening to him. Um, just absolutely funny, but really like uh, effective. Um, Don't give I me mean, that. You really got a, a thing for forgettable Spider-Man montages, man. I wow. Wow. Um, That's, that is harsh. This is just, this is everything I hate about the Raimi Spider-Man movies. Like, if you cut all this crap out of the, out of them, it just it it's they'd be so much better. I hate this. That freeze frame is so bad. It's so That's stupid. So, good. so it's um, yeah, it's just. I mean, the scene. I, I understand what they're doing, um, but like the song is just a. It's just a dumb choice for the song. It's just like, yeah. It's it's. Anybody else want to talk about this? I I don't even know what else to say. So. Uh, Rewatching this with my family uh, prior to No Way Home coming out, uh, uh, this scene happens, and I can't remember which family member it was. They turn to me and go, "That might have been the most two thousands cheesy scene I have ever seen in my life." And I'm like, "Yeah, but it's fun, so I, I don't care." But no, a good pick, uh, way too high, but no, fair enough. Who are you talking to, Jack? Who are you talking to? Kurt. Kirk just hates earnestness, I guess, uh, right. because that that is what this scene is, and that is what distinguishes the uh, Raimi Spider-Man movies. And I think this scene is the embodiment of that. Um, that it wears its heart on its sleeve, for better or for worse. But um, I think it's a it's a very fine sequence. I mean, I, I don't think there are any bad scenes from this movie. So um, I, you know, I think it's a, a, a good, a good solid pick. Um, and yeah, I, I love that even when he's fixing his bike, he's still kind of like, he's not, he doesn't have it all together because his freaking tire rolls out the window. Um, so, it, you know, he's still like there, he's still got some hills to overcome, but uh, you know, he's, he's doing better. Listen, Kirk, movies come along every once in a while that are just not for you. This is one of those. <laughs> I love the Raimi. I love the first two. Let's see. Um, Jake has drank the Kool-Aid. He's blinded by the third, whatever the case may be. But these two... And this scene isn't the best use of raindrops keep falling on my head. I will not agree to that statement at all. Say, oh, maybe I said best, but I meant like it's my favorite. Like, you know. that, that would save you a lot more. Um, but overall, it's fun. I don't think it should be on the like. There's a lot. Like when I was thinking the Spider-Man, because I was thinking of adding two Spider-Man scenes from both of the the first two. I just felt like there's no point because of you. So I feel like there's better scenes, but. Since you had to, since there's a good amount still to come. For the record, I agree. There are better scenes. Since there's more to come, 
I guess like 45 is probably the lowest it could possibly go for you, like overall. So, yeah. Couple of things. <laughs> you know how you know how I know this movie was for me. I went to the theater and they I, I gave them money and they gave me a ticket, so it was for. No, me. that's not true. Second of all, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire was not for there, us, there, but we could pay a, for it. There was a time. It's garbage. I would have. I but I would have. I did say that Spider Man Two was the greatest comic book movie ever, and. Scenes like this are the reason I don't say that anymore. Going back and watching this nonsense is why this. You movie had in game on your top one hundred. This movie has aged like no. cheese left out in the sun. That's no. um. You have you had in game at Jake, sixty, sir. Jake, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. We've all grown. Jake, what's your 45? No. There's a pandemic, Jake. A lot happened. (laughs) This is gonna get this is gonna get better. This is gonna get a lot better. Yeah. So listen, Spider-Man 2, a great movie, and that's a great scene, but you know what's better than Spider-Man 2? Spider-Man. And of all the villains that Spider-Man has faced, you know, Green Goblin, Dark Ark, Sandman, you know, Electro, (laughs) all these sort of villains. There's one villain who I think is Spider-Man's greatest enemy. He is the master of disaster. He is ready. Spider-Man versus Bonesaw. Yes. Bonesaw is ready. Three minutes of playtime. Um, this is like I'm, I'm sure Kirk's going to say exactly what he said about the raindrops sequence. Uh, this is campy fun, and I love that Randy Savage is committing so much. To this character i believe he auditioned but they were like you are so overqualified to audition you will we will we will have you absolutely and the fact that they just made up a wrestler for him to play and the fact that bonesaw is kind of something that people remember like as a fictional rest as fictional wrestlers goes he's probably like the most famous one i know people like this thunder lips but bonesaw is just like such a fun personality and i like that this is when peter in the story this is when peter like really starts to become Spider-Man, even though he's doing this for greed at this point, he's still learning like you know, the great power of responsibilities. But just the fun of the scene. There's a little unfortunate uh, homophobia in the scene. But uh, if you just pretend that that never happened and that this is just a movie from 2002 where that was like kind of okay, just you can, I can forgive it. Um, but just the whole sequence, how it plays out and how he does kind of get just smashed around in the cage. And then, and, and, and Michael had mentioned it last night, but I've got to mention, uh, I love when they just have, you know, just emphasize a, uh, a, a uh, an extra and Raimi does that so well in, in the trilogy, but that when the cage comes out, you have that one guy He's my, one of my favorite things in the entire trilogy, the guy that just goes cage, um, that is just me when I watch the movie. I'm just shouting just everything that happens and just like super excited. Um, but the whole sequence is fun and the fact that he wins and then it leads to you know him getting underpaid and then Uncle Ben's death, I think, really just shows like this is what Peter could have been and it would have been a, a tragic tale of this of this character. And it's just fun. Like, come on, like we can have fun scenes, and I think this is such a, a fun moment for, for Peter and Bone uh, for Spider-Man and Bonesaw. Um, yeah, Bonesaw is ready. Yeah, Randy Savage, RIP. Um, this scene will not be anything like it is without him. I mean, that guy was just a walking mountain of charisma. And I think, you know, if he would have lived, I think he could have had like a, or lived longer, I should say, he 
probably could have had like a pretty solid acting career because um, he just that guy could do it all. Um, compared to your last scene, this is friggin' brilliant. Um, what I love about this is that they they kept. I don't know if the wrestling like was a part of like the original original Spider-Man mythos, like the original story. I remember I remember from like the '80s Spider-Man, his amazing friend cartoon. Like I remember that was like he was a wrestler, and then he, uh, and then he, you know, the whole Uncle Ben thing happened. Uh, so I kind of like. I think it's cool that they kept that, and it's yeah. I mean, it's I, I'm not going to begrudge you this. Like I don't think it belongs on top 100. I don't think it's 44 best of all time. Um, but as far as Spider-Man scenes go, grading you on a curve, not a bad. <laughs> Um, everybody else on boat saw uh, perfection. Go ahead, Cody. As growing up as a wrestling fan and knowing of Randy Savage, and knowing that when he showed up in a Spider Man, my worlds collided for a second. There's no greater moment. Like when I got you. Th- it's playtime. Like how he just goes through everything is just—it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. From like the introduction, that's not my name, to like the cage coming down. Like I just think the ridiculousness of it is like we're gonna get people from the crowd to go wrestle this rented out monster, and it's like, oh, by the way, it's gonna be a cage match. <laughs> okay, that seems legit. Like. It's over the top, can't be stupid, but it's so much fun. And I just love the opening to Jake's thing where he was talking about probably the most popular fictional wrestler. Like, there's a huge database out there of people that, like, (laughs) of the fictional Bonesaw Thunderlifts. Oh, I'm not sure. But I love the... (laughs) So, I love the the commitment to him, like, spelling it, like... This is the best fictional character wrestler. Okay, good job, Jake. This is a this is a proper forty four for you. If you're gonna have that raindrops at forty five, I will say that my uh, eighth grade science teacher is in a scene in Foxcatcher uh, wrestling uh, Steve Carell for like five seconds. Uh, so maybe he's the best fictional wrestler. But um, no, first of all, shout out to the Flying Dutchman, um, yes, who, as we all know, yeah. was uh, <laughs> defeated by Bonesaw before this. Um, second of all, another not lame example of a superhero major character getting their name, like secret, like thing that actually makes sense. Unlike again, the the worst example that I always bring up is Han Solo getting his name from Solo is awful. Um, so when a movie does it right. Um, you know, it's always satisfying to see, and this scene does it right. I don't have anything else to add. It's a phenomenal movie. It's such a fun scene. Love it. Yeah, I know. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the film, not the one I'd go with, but honestly, this is a this is a great 44. I, I really enjoy the scene, so good job, Jake. All right, Scott, come back to you for 47. Okay, I'm keeping the Spike Lee train rolling for me. Uh, This is the confrontation outside Sal's from Do the Right Thing. Um, Yeah, this is, I mean, the ultimate scene from this movie. You know, when everything, all of the anger and hate um, and prejudice that has been building up for the entire movie just explodes. And critically, Mookie, who is like the neutral character throughout the entire movie, the one who is kind of like trying to keep the peace 
um, trying to be the mediator in, in uh, many ways, who is actually the one that instigates everything by throwing the, the trash can through the, the window of cells and, you know, just, just speaks to everyone has their breaking point. Um, and, you know, then all hell breaks loose. Um, the riots start happening. Of course, the police get involved. Radio Rahim is killed. Um, and it's, it's, you know, obviously a sequence that's very, I mean, it's, it's of its time for sure, but it's also very ahead of its time. And if you think about even just a couple of years ago, the riots and everything that we had here in the U S and the conversations that were going on of like, you know, people's lives versus property damage, right? Like what is, what are we, what are our priorities here? What is more important? And, you know, you kind of have the same thing going on in this scene and, you know, you just read comments and people's interpretations of the scene and um, you'll see, but you'll see all both sides of it. Um, and I, but ultimately I think, you know, the movie is not about, um, you know, one side being the good guys, one side being the bad guys necessarily. Um, it's too good of a movie for that. It's, you know, more, more nuanced than that. And it's more about how their hate there's hate and prejudice coming from all corners and everyone we see in this movie. And, um, naturally when that stuff continues to fester and no one is stopping it you get this sort of violence that breaks out and you get, can even get tragedy out of that again radio rahim is killed uh, amidst all this and my favorite image is just like that shot of mookie and jade like sitting there on the sidewalk on the curb um as everything is just going to hell around them and they're just sitting there with like these looks on their faces like what has just happened and like you know, they're just tired of everything, but also they're just like numb and dazed to everything that's going on. So it's maybe like the magnum opus of, of Spike Lee's career, the scene, certainly the movie is, I think, but um, even this scene. And I'm not sure that a, a movie has ever better captured the sort of racial violence that we still see in America um, as this scene. Yeah. Um... I think this scene's really well done. Um, I have, you know, I've talked about it just last, your last pick. I talked about my critiques of Spike Lee, but um, there's really nothing wrong. And I think you hit nail on the head where it's like, there's no one that you're necessarily rooting for or against in the scene. It's just, you're watching like these people, like this, this community just dissolve, you know, under the, the, the pressure and the stress that they're all under. Um, for me, the entire movie um, the anchor for this movie is Ossie Davis, and um, he's he's the everything he's in. I, he's he's automatically the guy I connect to. And then um, I don't remember the actress's name, but mother sister, the two of them, Ruby D. Yeah, yeah and um, just watching them in this scene, you know, with with him trying to like kind of you know, for, at first trying to break it up, they realize he can't like just basically like saving. Um, you know, saving Cell's life, getting him out of there and be like, you just gotta let it happen. And then, you know, watching Mother's sister just break down, like screaming burn down, you just seeing her hit her breaking point and her like giving into the violence. It's kind of like the most heartbreaking thing to me because you see like this elder person who's kind of been like the 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 the, the, the maternal figure in the neighborhood, the source of wisdom, and even now she is completely broken down. Um is is really devastating. Um and I've I've the interpret I don't, I don't know I can't remember if this is Spike Lee himself his interpretation or if I just heard it somewhere else, but the idea that um, 
Mookie throwing the garbage can is the titular right thing because what he's doing is he, and again, I don't know if this is the way you're supposed to look at it, but um, you know, there, everybody's going after sale at that, uh, at that point. And he throws the garbage can basically to get them focused on the shop and get that to basically save sale, like sacrifice the shop to say, like you said, the whole like property damage versus human life. Like he's sacrificing the shop to, save sell because they, if they didn't have sub outlet for their rage, they would have taken it out on him. So I just think that's interesting too. Um, Cause when the first time I watched this, I was really pissed at Mookie for like, not only doing that, but the way he treats sell afterwards. Um, just like his, like, just his, like, I don't basically care about you and I'm gl- kind of glad I did it. Um, just but throwing look, the money at him. Yeah. yeah. Looking at, looking at the, that. Yeah. Like give, give me my money. Um, the, you know, the kind of shamelessness of it, but looking at it through that lens kind of changes it. So, like you said, it's very much up to interpretation, and it, like I think the characterizations are done very well. Um, so, very strong scene. Probably, I haven't seen all Spike Lee, but what I've seen is probably the best one. Uh, everybody else on the uh, final confrontation do the right thing. Uh, yeah, okay. go ahead. I was to say, uh, fantastic scene. Uh, it's been uh, it's been a minute since I've seen it. I remember twenty fourteen. Watching this, um, like when I just started really getting into like other filmmakers that I wasn't super familiar with, um, and I remember at the time when when Mookie uh, throws the, the garbage can, I thought that was just like a really powerful moment. Just like I kind of, even though I understand Sal's point of view, I was kind of with uh, Mookie and and the writers. And I've always interpreted like, yeah, I do think that is the right thing, the titular right thing. Um, and in the sense that I've always taken it as Mookie is trying to make sure that the ride doesn't grow out of control and get them focused on Sal's um, restaurant and not the uh, the convenience store. I think it's the convenience store across the street. Mm-hmm. The, um, like the Korean people. The Korean yeah. people, yeah. Like to tr- not make sure that it doesn't diverge and then just go out of control. Um, but I've, that's how I've always sort of taken it as. Um, but yeah, no, it's a really powerful scene and it is just like, you know, the breaking point for all these characters and the, the day in the life of all of, all of them and what happened with Radio Rahim. Uh, yeah, very effective and a, and a fantastic scene. That's a really good point, Jake, because it's like you see when they go over the convenience store, like the one guy's like, you're next. But at that point, like, it's it's already run out of steam. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. everybody's kind of like gotten out of their system at that point. And, and he's saying, and the Korean guy's like, we're the same. You and me, we're the same. Right. Like, saying that to the, the black rioters as well. And there's kind of a moment of solidarity for a second there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The uh, first and so far only time I've seen this was August of 2020 when it came to my local indie theater. And I saw it with Holzman. Uh, and I was genuinely horrified as to this came out in 1989 and it speaks so well to what's happening today uh like even now over decades later uh just genuinely one of the most uh ahead of its time films for me i uh i need to see it again but that being said i could there's so much of this movie that has just stuck with me i haven't really felt the need to go back to it so uh great pick if you would have picked any other scene from Do the Right Thing, I would have had questions. Because this is the scene from Do the Right Thing. Uh, I didn't consider it. Um, I, I like the scene a lot. But yeah, that's a, that's a great choice, for sure. All right, uh, 46, Scott. I think this is probably a yikes, but uh, it's the shootout of all shootouts. It's from Heat, of course. 
nobody had it. Wow. Uh, I'm shocked. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the greatest shootout in film history. Um, just the the behind the scenes and the fact that, you know, Michael Mann, he's so meticulous and he like br brings in people to like basically have the actors shooting off live rounds for like weeks um, and also trying to capture the sound of that. Right. Because that's one of the most amazing things of the, about the scene is the sound is like it is so loud. Like I have never seen this movie in a theater, but I can imagine this has got to be one of the loudest scenes you could possibly watch because just the sound of that ammunition, like it's the, you know, it's the most real sounding that movie gunfire has ever sounded. Um, and just the way that he used, I mean, I, it's, it had to have been just insane to film this, like the way that like this entire section of LA is just blocked off and the way that he uses all of it so well. And it's just, you know, the machine gun fire just pelting everything. Um, and, you know, you have some great, like, character moments going on and um, Vincent Hanna, like, running around and, of course, like, the climax of the sequence of Michael Chirito, uh, Tom Sizemore's character, grabbing, like, the little girl and um, Vincent Hanna, like, having to take the shot, you know, one of those like you hold your breath moments because you know it's like oh is he gonna hit the hit the little girl or is he gonna hit Chirito? and uh, he does hit her and save the or hit hit him hit, he he hits uh, Chirito and saves the little girl, um, but there's just so many little moments inside of there, um, and obviously Dennis Haysburg too right playing the truck driver who's like this tragic character right that just gets recruited into it by um, Neil McCauley um, who was his past associate and. You know, he's like the first one to go in this whole shootout scene, even though he's kind of like the pathetic guy who, again, just got out of jail and gets like roped back into this uh, just because he's working a diner job that he hates. And he's like, oh, hey, here's something I can do instead. Um, so, so many great moments inside of it. But really, again, just the technical precision in Michael Mann's filmmaking is like, you know, jaw dropping. Like it, there's nobody that can really compare to him when it comes to staging a sequence like this. Yeah, this is the movie, like, if I was making this list, I probably would or this scene. I wouldn't have thought of this scene for Top 100. But the more I think about it, and even less you describe it, um, yeah, it's a really well-done scene. And even, like, there are some things in it that are kind of cliche. Like you said, like, the hostage situation or everything. But it's still, like, so well done. And just, uh, just the way it's filmed, um, I think it's all, like just it's all like basically like close-ups and like it's all on the ground like the camera's always never leaves the ground and it just like puts you right in it and it just shows you everybody's angle and just like the scene where they're like kind of like tactically moving from car to car and like clearing the area and everything um just a lot of great like cool shootout moments so yeah like i said it's not what i would have considered but it's a very very solid scene uh everybody else in the heat shootout uh, fantastic shootout. Um, I just want to, I also, I, I have nothing against Braveheart and Apollo 13 with its uh, sound mixing and sound editing, but uh, it is actually crazy that Heat was not even nominated at the Oscars. Would have been for any, for anything, a winner, winner for both those categories uh, easily. The, like what Scott was, how he was talking about the sound design on that, on the shooting, like the gunshots. I've never heard gunshots sound that way. And the whole idea behind that is that Michael Mann originally did not he originally wanted it to all be done in post, but when he just couldn't get the sound right. So it was like, they were just like, we'll just use the sound that we had when we filmed it. And that's the sound. And it just is perfect. 
like I don't know how to really describe it. It's just was wonderful how they did it. And also just the rehearsing and everything behind how long it took for them to set up the whole sequence and the sh and how they shot and how long it took. It's just, it is really effective. It's just, it's never been a sequence that I've absolutely been like, would, would call a favorite. Um, but I do absolutely love, I mean, it's a little bit of a side tension, but I do love the storyline with the truck driver, how they, that is something that you just would not have expected. And th the fact that, yeah, you were saying he's the first one to go just shows that like, it doesn't matter if you're good or bad, like you, you get shot, you, you, you get killed and then that's it, no matter who you are. Um, yeah. And I do think this is a, a, an effective scene. It's also just crazy that the movie goes on for like a lot of, another 30, 40 minutes after this. I think the shock is that expected me to have it on there. Um, I gave it a long consideration. Um, I consider two scenes slightly better than this, so I had to pick and choose. Well, I, did, I didn't say I thought it was the best scene for the movie. No, I know, I know. <laughs> I limited myself to two scenes, and uh, but I think at the end of the day I had to settle for just overall the one, but uh, absolutely great. Absolutely. And I knew there was a shot with you on the panel that you'd include some heat scenes, so I didn't have to like say burn some of my stuff. So no, it's a, it's absolutely amazing. Uh everything behind the scene. And you're and you're hundred percent right. I've never seen it in the theater. But watching at Tim's house, it was still like, God, this is like they are so it's so loud of a scene. But it's so effective at the same time. Like, it's crazy how that works. So, yeah. Again, the Oscars, yeah. Getting things wrong for, you know, century at this point. It's almost so, yeah, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, the Oscars getting things wrong since 1927. I haven't seen this movie. Yeah. Uh, I own it. I have to watch it. It's high on my watch list. Maybe I'll be able to see it. Do you think they got it wrong with giving Lord of the Rings shit? I agree. I agree with you, Jack. It's not going to be no, the last time we no. talk about it. Uh, 2003 is an anomaly. I'll put it that way. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, oh, yes, my sure. number 45 uh, is the trade deadline scene from the Moneyball. No yikes? Okay. Um, so this nice. is, of course, the scene where it's the trade deadline, and Billy is trying to get Ricardo Rincon for the the relief pitcher from the Indians uh, for the Athletics, and so he starts off by like calling the Indians, and he's working with uh, with Peter Brand, obviously with Jonah Hill's character, and they're like, who you know, who can we trade basically to get him, and who can we offer that them to, and like trying to rope in other teams, and it's basically it's almost like the the phone sequence from All the President's Men, where he's just like calling like three different people and like getting information from somebody and then using that and calling somebody back. It's a classic like Sorkin-y like talky scene. I have no idea whether if this is actually how these things go down at like MLB, you know, boardrooms and offices, but it's really cool to see like Billy Bean, the GM, like taking control of this and like, you know, calling up the other GMs. And again, just the wheeling and dealing aspect of it and the dialogue is great. And you know, he's putting people on hold and he can't remember who he's actually talking to. He's like, Steve. And they're like, which Steve? You know, is it Steve Phillips or Steve whoever? He's like, no, why would I be calling Steve Phillips? Um, and, you know, finally, uh, they're like looking through the spreadsheets, like what prospect are we going to offer? What player? Like who's worth anything? Who else can we get from this deal? And finally, um, you know, the one GM calls back and 
Peter is on the phone with them and you can't hear and you don't know what's going on. And he just does like that fist pump and like the silent. Yeah. And uh, you realize that they've, they've gotten Rinko. And so it's just a, it's a great, um, it's just a fun sequence, especially for somebody who's such a huge baseball fan like me, just to see like backroom, you know, transactions turned into like a freaking set piece practically uh, in a movie. I think it's just in general what makes Moneyball such an amazing movie. But um, this is like all of that in a, you know, small sequence packaged up. So I love it. Yeah, this is a great scene. And what I love about it is how it's a payoff from the beginning, you know, because the early, you know, one of the earliest scenes, he it's him in the office of the, of the Cleveland GM. And they're basically like mm-hmm. laughing at him like he's like the poor kid at the lunch table that they're all making fun out of. And, you know, if you want, if you want, if you want to prove how bad somebody is, have Cleveland laugh at them. That'll, that'll, that, that okay. really. All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but, um, no. And then like, cause that's in that scene, it's early on. He's like, that's the first person I think he asked for is Ricardo. Good. And like, yeah. no, you, you can't afford Ricardo. Good. That's not, that's not going to happen. And like, they're kind of like snickering at him about it. And then like this scene where it's like, I love when he walks in, he's like, Hey, get Cleveland on the phone. And Peter goes, you think of Rincon? Like he, like they're like, like yeah. on that like same wave, wavelength. And then they start playing all that game. I love that delivery that line where he said he's just standing on the table like that, and he's talking to the one GM. He's like, "Hey, I'm gonna make this." He's like, "Why are you gonna do this for me, Billy?" Because I'm amazing. Like, yeah. I, just, I just love the delivery of that line. And like you said, just the bouncing around of like you know, like playing the trophy. Hey, you know, uh, it's only San Francisco. Like just just the way they're working. And that's the, what's so great about this is the, the best scenes. It's like w- w- when you see their love for what they're doing and the fact that they're taking baseball and they're making it like a math problem you know you're, they're going to make it more boring but you see that they still get like the joy out of it they still get the, the that excitement of like making their thing work and that's what makes the scene so great I think it's just like it's finally starting to pay off for them and they can and they can, they can do all the things they want to do um you know prove all the naysayers wrong so um yeah that's a very fun scene in the movie i, I think there's a lot of scenes like this uh, not a lot maybe handful of scenes like this in the movie that you could have picked. Um, but I, th- I think this is a, a great choice. Uh, everybody else in the trade dialing money ball. Uh, yeah, this is a great scene. Not the one I'd pick from the film, but still fantastic. So uh, nice, Scott. Good job. I hate this scene. <laughs> and it's and it's not because it's bad. What I was expecting Kai to say. I hate it because it makes non-baseball fans be like, that's so cool. That's the trade deadline. Like, oh, my God. Baseball is so cool. And never watch a game in Coho and Boatman and all these people. Um, this scene uh, seemed great. Absolutely fantastic. Like, could have been on my list. I, I, I have been, like, one of the people that always thinks that they should do, like, a hard knocks um, for baseball to get, like, people out. And like break it apart by seasons, like your first seasons with the club, your second, your second part, like during the trade deadline, and you're in those offices and getting like the inside scoop of what's happening. I think it'd just be brilliant. They would never let anybody in because of deals falling apart, but it'd make it more marketable because this scene works so well because those calls the last three, four hours before the trade deadline are like insane. Like, oh, this player was not available. Now this player is available. Do you want him? Here's what's offering. And like quick deals are made and stuff. And it makes the scene, especially a person that has such budget restrictions, having to make sacrifices for stuff is just a brilliant scene. So no, I love the scene. I just hate non-baseball fans being like, that's a trade deadline. They don't realize it takes like three weeks in the major leagues for anybody to get traded. Like, go for it. 
Um, yeah, like, I like the scene. Uh, famously, I am not a sports person. I, I particularly just never, I know, shocking. Um, I've just never really particularly cared about sports. Um, no rugby? No, nah, no, rugby. I mean, rugby, no. Nah, uh, AFL, Australian, we have our own football. Uh, oh, just, scrub? Really. Um, but like, <laughs> like sports and maths, and this whole movie is just about the two, is just like something that I'm just completely uninterested in. And it's a movie that I thought I could get into just because I like the idea of, you know, new drafts and, you know, the sort of, I kind of just interpret it in my own sort of like way. It's just something that I don't really have any strong interest in. Um, and just the fact that it's about baseball is just like, yeah. It's fine, same, just yeah. not my thing. I'm sorry. Jake, you talk, or, uh, Jack. Yeah, we all talked. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, Scott, give us your number 44. Sure. This was the one I was kind of alluding to earlier when we were talking about Goodwill Hunting, but this is from uh, Columbus, and it's uh, the scene in front of the bank. The, what moves you see? Um, yeah. I think I've seen this. I've seen this one. <laughs> um, so this is, a, it's a pretty short scene actually, but it takes place in front of this like modernist bank in Columbus. Columbus being a movie that is uh, partly about people having conversations and partly about architecture and partly about people having conversations about architecture. And this is the third category uh, because um, it starts off with Casey, which is Haley Lou Richardson's character, sort of just like, describing all of the history of this this bank um and you know just like the facts basically the wikipedia entry about you know the, the creation of this bank and the architecture and everything and john cho's character jen is like no 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 wait you said that this was um you know your second favorite building or something at columbus like why is that the case and she's like well, because it's and starts going into the same spiel and like spouting off facts about it. And he's like, no, do you like this building because um, of the information about it? Like, do you like, like this building because of facts or is there another reason why? And she's like, well, no, actually it, it moves me also. And he's like, well, tell me about that. Why does it, you know, what moves you about it? And then it actually, uh, the sound cuts out and we just see her giving him a speech of what, it, you know, what is implied is her describing in much more personal terms what the building means to her but we only see like her face and like the gestures and everything she's making when she's giving it but we don't actually hear what she's saying which i think is such an interesting choice uh but a brilliant choice again koganat is a very visual filmmaker and i love his his choice to do that and just sort of let that moment be between those two characters and not between the audience and them and Haley Lou Richardson gives such a great performance in the whole movie, but in the scene and her folk, like how focused she is when she's like, you know, describing the building, obviously, but again, we can't hear her. We feel like we know kind of what she's saying, even though we can't hear it because of how strong her body language and everything is um, in this performance. So I love the scene. I love the idea of the scene and like this movie being a lot about, you know, what are you passionate about? And you know, again, in this scene, in this movie, it's about architecture, but you can really apply this to a lot of, um, you know, whatever you're, whatever people are passionate about. It's not because of information or facts or anything you know about it. Like all of us are here. We know a lot of facts and information about movies, right? Like that's how we got in this community. We know a lot of trivia, but that's not why we love movies. The reason we love movies is because we all have 
you know, these movies that hit us in a personal way. And um, when we talk about those movies, it's different than talking about, you know, the information we might know or, you know, hey, we could say this person gave a great performance in this movie or talk about, you know, the sort of basic aspects of a film. But ultimately, our favorite films are the ones that we can talk more deeply about what they mean to us. Um, so I love this scene. Uh, yeah, I went back and rewatched this, and I really like this scene. Um, I, I I watched this movie for your top 100 last year, Scott, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I love the relationship between these two characters, and that's what I love about this scene is that they let this just like we, it's just for them, you know. We, we don't it just the, we, all we know is that they're he's learning, he's learning, she's giving him the information that he's trying to draw out of. And that you that relationship is well. I like how they shoot it. It's, they go inside the building. That's why you can't hear it because he, they're inside. They're she, you're looking out through the window. So you know that's that's so you're kind of just watching them. But you're, I don't think they even show him as she's no. talking, just her. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I love it just the way. It, like I said, it's a very interesting way to develop that relationship without, like you said, completely visually. Um, you know, purposely withholding information from us, but knowing that they've given it to each other. Um, could I know you probably have thoughts on this? Anybody else have, have the uh, Jack or Jake? Have you seen Columbus? And if so, do you have thoughts on the scene? I have seen this movie. Um, I mean, this is a recommendation from Paul a few a couple years ago, a few years ago now. Um, I wish I can say I love this movie. It's just something that I just I don't know if it was just the time I watched it or kind of my mood. I just didn't really connect to it the way I was kind of hoping for or the way I think Paul was expecting me to. Um, it's just, it's one scene I just, I have forgotten the scene, um, to be totally honest. It's a movie that I, I, I would like to rewatch just to see if my opinion will change because I like, I just recently watched After Yang and I really like that movie. I think I'd like, uh, if I go back and watch Coconut's first movie, I will probably, my opinion will probably change. Um, but I like the idea of that, you know, people will view certain things like architecture to, to, to some people is an art form. And the way you know architecture and buildings are designed they can view it as like the way we look at movies and other people look at music and paintings and i kind of like that as an idea that the movie sort of kind of talks about but um it's just one that i just wasn't really connecting with but i do want to try again and watch it a second time i don't know if you guys know this but i host a show called the round table and currently it's the most viewed episode on our channel um because of basis because of columbus yeah um it's got six thousand views right now and if you want my full in-depth analysis on <laughs> that review it's on the round table new one coming out later this month i haven't seen this movie it's one of my fandom team's partners favorite films and i haven't seen it so sorry matthew <laughs> All right, um, so that was 44, which means we circle back around. We're going to carousel through these last three. Uh, Jack, give us your number 43. All right, my number 43 is The Tunnel from Memories of Murder. This scene is fantastic. Uh, they've uh, So Song Kang-ho and I Am So Sorry, I am blanking on the other detective's name right now. They found... It's, yeah. I think it's Kim Sang-kyun, I believe is his name. Kim Sang-kyun. Uh, okay, so Song Kang-ho and Kim Sang-kyun have found another uh, victim, uh, another murder victim, and they've 
basically this is their breaking point specifically kim sang hume's uh breaking point where he finally becomes uh what song kang ho was at the beginning of the film where he uh doesn't care whether or not it's uh actually the 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 actual killer or if uh it's someone uh innocent he just wants to end it put it away uh and you see that once song kang ho comes with the uh, dna test and it's not a match uh kim sang Hyun takes a look at it and says there's a mistake the document's a lie i don't need it and he goes to grab the gun uh to kill this the person that he believes uh has been murdering all these women and uh <sighs> This scene uh, is mentally exhausting. There's so many moments in this film I could have gone with, but this is uh, this is the scene that uh, just lives in my head uh, when I think of this movie. It's brilliant, uh, brilliant end to this film. Yeah, I I hope it's been a while since I've seen this movie, so I hope I remember it correctly. Um, when I talk about it, if not, I'm sure I'll be heckled mercilessly. Um, but uh, from my from my recollection, it's one of those movies that I, I talked about before uh, on the show. I love when you have like crossing character arcs, uh, and you have you have the one cop who's kind of like the straight arrow by the book kind of guy, and then he's partnered up with a guy who kind of does his own thing. Um, you know, not as worried about the rules. And then it ends up where you have the straight lace guy who is the one that's going to, you know, he, he just he, it finally breaks and he has to punish somebody. And it doesn't matter who, you know, it really doesn't matter who he's, just somebody needs to be punished. And like you said, when he's confronted with the fact that, you know, he's so sure this is the guy and when he's confronted with the, with the facts, they don't matter. He's just going to do, he's going to do the punishing that he needs to do. And it's the guy that was kind of like more, willing to take those risks and who has to stop them. So I just love uh, stories like that uh, and characters like that. Um, so it's so great. And yeah, just, just the setting of the tunnel and, you know, the darkness and, you know, it's um, and just the, the, the score is really good. You know, there's certain, you know, when he's, you know, when, when, when he grabs the guys, like, look in my eyes, he's like, I can't tell. And just like, just the ambiguity of like the, 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 the DNA does evidence to say it's not him. It just says inconclusive. So it could still be. And it's it's kind of like it reminded me of Zodiac. It had that Zodiac feel to it. It's like where, you know, it's this this is probably our guy, but we can't be sure, but we want it to be. Um, so yeah, just cool ending the movie. Another this is another one I really need to rewatch. Um, but everybody else on uh, Memories of the Murder Tunnel scene, if you see it. I need um, to rewatch this. Um I've seen it one time. I think it's absolutely an incredible film the first time I watched it. But I could not just pick one scene from this movie. I think this is one of those movies I did like a deep dive on like theories and stuff afterwards and the making and everything about it because I was I was enthralled with it. I let some time for it to breathe. Like I haven't went back to it yet. I wanted to sit on it and see how I feel after. But I know the exact scene you're talking about. I think it's a fantastic scene. I just couldn't justify putting the scene on there without like more time with this film because i think i think this is a movie that the more you watch it the more you pick up and seeing it one time i don't feel like i picked up everything at this point so yeah uh yeah this is an incredible movie and i just want to sh- i know he's just gone into his room but i want to shout out michael campbell for getting me the pong juno box set last year and that's how i was able to watch this movie um 
it's yeah just like such a captivating movie and as the sequence of events play out and we get to this point in the movie you just you're with the detectives in that you the desperation on trying to capture the the murderer and you just want to believe it's this guy even though the evidence is you know not exactly substantial to if that's pointing towards him it just you just want it to be him so that this can be over um but the fact is is that they have to have the higher ground as far as morally so morally speaking so it's just like you, you know they can't do it even though you just want it want them to do it because you want it to be true you want it him to be the murderer um and there's just that sort of like emotional breaking point and the fact that it's all just it's just raining and it's just such it's heavy rain throughout the entire that entire scene it's just like really adds to the like the atmosphere of the movie um there's only one scene better than this in my opinion and that's the ending that's the scene that takes place like right yeah. after this um but Fair. this is like such a powerful moment like as you follow these two detectives and just sort of the dynamic between the two and then just how this sequence plays out i think is absolutely fantastic i'm i would like to rewatch it again um I imagine it might make my top 100 after I do. So, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, it's in my top 100 very high. Um, I love this movie. And there's like four scenes, honestly, you could have picked. Like there's this scene, there's the very ending. There's even like when the one woman like gets chased through the field and like the rainstorm. There's the foot chase when they chase the one you know weird guy like to the factory through the factory and everything mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and he's got like the, the panties on or whatever yeah. and they find him that way they pick him out that way yeah i mean so many good seasons i just couldn't even pick one but this is definitely you know a great pick and one as you all have pointed out that sort of crystallizes the the themes and the excellent like character work every, and everything that's going on in the movie so um great pick yeah all right. Uh, and Zodiac Cody. is one of Bong Joon-ho's favorite films. So. Cody, give us your uh, 43. I was talking about a diner earlier. I wasn't referring to the right diner. I was talking about the diner in Reservoir Dogs. The tipping. I don't believe in tipping. Okay. Um, I think this is like Tarantino's like dialogue on full display. I just think it's brilliant. Creates a bunch of people around a room. You don't know anything about them, but you learn so much about those characters in such a short bit of just sitting around the table talking. One's talking about, you know, the the real about uh, like a virgin and what that actually means, and like uh, and then like I was driving down and listening to a different song, like the night lights went out in Georgia, um, and then him sitting there talking about tipping and like. <laughs> it's a conversation, like, it's a conversation, like, even back then, there's a conversation, like, I've had with numerous people in my life about tipping. It could be young people that are just now, like, paying for things and tipping, or people that have tipped their entire lives, and, like, the entire, like, I don't tip, or they tip less, or they don't tip a certain amount, or they don't know the difference, and, like, just the thought of this conversation happening is just so real. I was like, I don't believe in Tim. Pay him a better wage. I don't believe in anything. Like, and the guy, and it just shows that generation. The old guy comes back to the table. And says, what do you mean you don't believe in Tim? And I got your throw a bucket. Like, it's just like, it's just so natural how this conversation is formed between all these characters. And it's directly after the scene is where Tim Roth is like bleeding in the back of the car. Like, it's an instant jump from like, oh, what's this like? Okay, I get the button. This movie just jumps right after so it's like but you get all that character development basically from a four minute scene sitting around the table just chatting 
you, again, you don't know who's right and who's wrong or who's doing something and who's who's the double crossing person, but you learn so much in the scene. I think that's the power of what Tarantino is able to bring into a story. I just think it's absolutely incredible. Uh, Stuck in the Middle of You is a close second for this one, but this is the scene I automatically think of every time I think of Reservoir Dogs. It's just like because of how just he's able to create characters from nothing. So yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, there's so like it, there's so many conversations in this that could be their own scene. You know, the tippy and the like a virgin talking about you know you guys listen to Cable Super Sounds of the seventies. Uh, you know, uh, Lawrence Turney and his and her fight with Carvey can I tell about the about the date book or about the, the the phone book he has, and you know I've seen this. You know, it, it, it's it's so, and just like that, you have that level of playfulness, but also you can tell these are very dangerous people at the same time, and like you you know, you just get that sense that like below the surface there's there's something else going on, um, and like you said, I think that's what so many people try to copy Tarantino. Uh, and they can't because you hit the nail on the head. Even though it's very snappy and witty and clever, it also feels very natural and it flows. And, you know, these conversations are happening. And even though it's like elevated, it still feels like conversations being had with real people and, you know, things people would actually say. Uh, so he, 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 he makes, he, he threads that needle so well, like nobody else can. Um, I think so it's yeah. also amazing with if you've ever hear you hear Tarantino talk, like his brain fires at so many, like he just stumbles oh, through yeah. stuff, like because he's just trying to get it all out or what he's trying to say. Because he's so he what it, the subject matter is like he knows and he talks about, but the way he's able to write just fluid, like smooth dialogue, ever is crazy to me. Like because yeah. he's his mind's firing at like a, <laughs> a fast car, and like he's even talked about it. Like he's just like how fast I I get into a something I want to chat about. I'm so passionate. It just fires. And this is like a scene, like it's so like timed perfectly between every piece of dialogue. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody else on the uh, Reservoir Dogs Diner scene. This was almost on my list. Uh, I ended up going with Stuck in the Middle with you, uh, which I had earlier. Uh, but now great, great pick, Cody. You know what this is, Cody? It's the world's smallest violin. Um, I just, that whole sequence with Buscemi and just the idea, he's just sort of like, you know, his philosophy that I'm only going to, if it's a good service, then I'll tip. Um, and a little, little film bro uh, uh, call, uh, call forward, I guess, or, you know, uh, foreshadowing. Uh, Mr. Orange is the one who uh, who snitches out that Mr. Pink's the one who doesn't, uh, is the one that didn't tip, like, because he might be the only undercover police officer. <laughs> he's the one who snitched. Um, yeah, no, really great sequence. And just like the fact that this is the opening scene to the first tarantino movie this is our introduction to tarantino's like his career his filmography like as his first movie such an indicative of just him as a writer and a filmmaker where it's just of course he's gonna have him in the movie and i like that the fact that he it's he starts off the movie he starts off his career by talking about his philosophy with like a virgin and just like it's about a, it's about a chick who just wants to get a big dick like that whole stuff is great um yeah a, a wonderful opening yeah i was gonna say the same thing that Again, I've shared my thoughts in the movie that I it's not my favorite Tarantino for sure. Um, but I do love this scene and love like the context historically of this scene being the first scene of Tar- of a Tarantino film, basically, because immediately you just have this like crazy dialogue out of the gate that like I can imagine hearing that in nineteen ninety two it would have been like 
what is this? Like, I've never heard dialogue really like this before. And, but it's, you know, again, it's, it's such a perfect encapsulation of his style that he would, you know, soon perfect. So um, it's, it's an understandable pick for sure. All right. Uh, that takes us to Jake's number 43. Um, so we've all, we all have been in high school. We've all had a moment in our life where we wanted to just uh, yell and lash out at a teacher because we just don't really agree with their sort of teaching, uh, not necessarily just ideas and what they're sort of teaching. Um, I'm talking about absolutely such a satisfying scene and really hilarious and just fun from my one of my favorite movie ever of all time, uh, the fear and love sequence in Donnie Darko. Um, I absolutely love this setup. Uh, Kitty Farmer, Beth Grant, who like would be my Oscar winner this year. Um, she's fantastic as the gym teacher, Kitty Farmer, and sort of her 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 beliefs in Jim Jim Cunningham, and they're showing this tape of him and just like fear and love. That's what it's all about. It's like you, every choice that you make is either just, is decided by fear and all love and she has this whole assessment where everyone reads this like lifeline this uh story and basically you just got to write across down on this line of fear and love where do you think it sort of uh is on the uh on the the spectrum as, you, as she says um and Don, when donnie goes up and he has this whole story about lin lin um finding a wallet but she decides to keep the money in the wallet it's like well this just doesn't make any sense like this is a this isn't detected by fear and love like it's just not that simple you know human emotions are more complex than that and she's just like you gotta just do the, the assessment it's like it's just but life isn't this simple and just like we all just want to have that moment where we can just just basically just argue with this teacher like what are you talking about like this is just not how it is and the way donnie is just like such a smart character not in that he's just a rebellious sort of uh, teenager and the fact that he's just everything he says just makes sense to me which is like you can't just put everything into two categories and then just forget about the rest like just the whole spectrum of human emotions is more complex than that and then you have the point where it's like if you don't do this then you're going to get a zero for the day and you have the point where he's about to say something and then it just cuts to donnie with his parents in the uh in the principal's office and it's like okay what did you say to her what do you say to miss farmer and then it just cuts to miss farmer going i'll tell you what he said he told me to insert the uh, uh um the lifeline exercise card into my anus and you have the little chuckle from donnie's dad and then it's just like the punchline the fact that it's not you get it after the fact and it just cuts to him in the principal's office and you get her saying what he said to her really funny absolutely just um hysterical moment i remember watching it in the theater for its uh, 15th anniversary with a couple of mates and that that line got such a big laugh from the um, from the audience um really really fantastic scene um absolutely fun and funny and great I don't know about this one, Jake. Like, I'm not gonna say bad about it's not a bad scene, but like, I don't know. I, I, I seen the I've seen the movie. It's been a while. I didn't remember the scene, so I went back and watched it. And I mean, I just I don't see anything necessarily in how it's written, how it's acted, how it's shot that makes it very memorable. So um, again, maybe if I go back and rewatch the whole movie, I'll it's something will click for me. But just watching this one scene by itself didn't seem all that special to me. Uh, everybody else, anybody else have any different opinions on this scene from Donnie Darko? Um, I've only seen it once, thanks to Jake, uh, <laughs> but I did love it. And it's one I've been wanting to revisit almost since I watched it. 
I don't remember the scene super well. I do remember Beth Grant, however, in the movie. And yes, it was an iconic performance for sure. Um, it's a shame that she was, they criminally misused her recently and Amsterdam, a movie that should not exist. <laughs> but, she was in Amsterdam. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, well, you, you <laughs> blink and you'll miss her, honestly. But um, Well, here it's uh, a great film. That's it's a sidebar. Uh, Donnie Darko is a great film. From a very chill director, Amsterdam. Um, oh, I... Uh, I, uh, I, I've seen the movie one time a long time ago, and then I saw the, I rewatched it there, and the, the when she says it, the dad goes, <laughs> it's just, that part kills me, but I don't know if it would make my, it would definitely make my list, but I understand why you, um, you like these kind of, uh, scenes, you know. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie. All right, uh, Scott, number 43. All right, um, another Tarantino scene. Uh, this is from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's Rick and Trudy reading their books. Um, there are so many there are so many scenes to pick from this movie, and I struggled with which one to go with. Um, and this might be an unconventional one, but I really do think my favorite thing about the movie is Leonardo DiCaprio's performance, which is his best performance, in my opinion, as Rick Dalton. Um, and I think this might be his best scene. Um, this is when he meets Trudy, the young child actress played by Julia Butters that he's going to be working with um, on the TV show. And at first, it's sort of like this clash of personalities, right? Because she's very actorly and she asks to be called by her character's name and she's very proper and um, speaks in just a very you know articulate and put together manner for someone being like eight or nine years old however old she ends up saying she is and obviously rick dalton is not that you know he's got that sort of country accent he's uncouth he's you know sloppily put together at this point um and he, you know, says he's going to sit down and start reading his book next to her. And then eventually they start talking and um, he starts telling her about the Western novel that he's reading. And it ends up very much mirroring his own life and the fact that this character, Easy Breezy, is, um, you know, kind of uh, this aging gunslinger who's realizing he's not the best anymore. And of course, as he's... Um, telling the the story he gets choked up because he realizes it's he's describing himself basically um and then there's just like a wonderful moment of connection again between these two very different personalities like trudy being somebody who like again she is very about acting and like performance and the method but sees like a very human moment from rick dalton and like you know actually connects to that and comes over to him and um, i love her line where she's like I'm practically crying and I haven't even read it. Um, she says to him about the book and um, then he's like, uh, 15 years, you'll be living it. Um, which is, which is hilarious. Um, again, a great sort of comedic moment to break it up. But um, I think Julia Butters is also like fantastic. Like you could make an argument for her as doing one of the best supporting performances uh, from that year, even though she's only in a couple of scenes, like it is a, it is a phenomenal child performance but again i just love um the vulnerability that leonardo dicaprio and rick dalton um has in this scene i think 
it's a type of performance that not a lot of actors in DiCaprio's position or of his stature would have even attempted um, or would have, you know, been willing to sort of show this kind of vulnerability on screen. And that's what makes it so great um, in addition to Tarantino's dialogue. So it's a nice warm scene in what I think is Tarantino's warmest movie. Yeah, it's a, accurate. Um, not to say not a push from the movie, uh, but it is a really solid scene. It's, uh, yeah, I, I think I love that moment. Just to sh- you see how really fragile Rick is in this scene, just where this, you know, talking to this little kid about a book and just completely break him. And um, just you see kind of how on the edge he is. And she's great in it too. Um, like you said, she, just her um, kind of just showing him up and kind of, kind of being the, the, the catalyst. Um, doesn't he even say when he that that scene where he's like freaking out in the in the tra- in his trailer? Does he say something about like you know embarrassing yourself in front of that little girl or something like that? Like I think he has a line. And he's like you know you, you know you can do that in front of that little girl. Like what she says it like he's like this grown man, this experienced actor. Like this little he just like latches on this little girl and she becomes means so much to him. Um, but yeah, no, like I said, I think there's other scenes for me personally in this movie that that do a lot more. Um, but I think it's a really good character uh, character development moment for Rick. Uh, everybody else on uh, this scene in What's What Thoughts? Uh, this is a great moment. Uh, I do love Julia Butters in this moment. I'm very excited to see what she does later this month in The Fablemans. But not the scene I would have picked. Uh, I do like three scenes off the top of my head more than this one. Uh, one of them being the Spawn Ranch scene, uh, which I think is brilliant in building tension uh so but good pick uh absolutely uh one of the best scenes of the film listen there are like five great scenes from this movie i i totally understand picking any one of these uh, on on anyone's top 100 um this is a good scene i like the scene and i do actually i was going to mention it but you mentioned it scott but like tarantino isn't really known for being for having like warm moments or like not necessarily emotional scenes but just like <laughs> scenes like this between two people and a character just realizing sort of like just the inevitability of his life and the fact that he's sort of just like aging um i think that's just something that I, people tend to forget or don't really realize with tarantino is that he can absolutely have these sort of scenes in his movies and i think this is definitely the most um uh memorable uh scene of that sort of idea um really great scene i like the simplicity of it um i think this is really high on your list scott because you got the four pointer against us in the i was gonna say like it's well, weird that all of our everything's cut from that match is coming up tonight we had spider-man both, donnie darko donnie darko yeah <laughs> about to somebody's about to pull crazy rich asians or something next yeah maybe someone's got fargo next um <laughs> so i've seen this um this film um three times two times and i'm two i'm three more watches away from finally understanding what tarantino is going for so until then i can't really act on it so it'll be five stars and three watches that's at least coho's viewpoint you better make that a promise okay I'm probably Sorry. fucking not i'm not, I'm not <laughs> watching it three more times i'm not watching as long as you get there eventually i'm probably right, back back to uh jack for number 42. All right, my number 42, Cody, I think you had this in the 80s or the 90s, but uh, it's the snap from Infinity War. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
this, you may think this is high, uh, but I don't care because this scene, like seeing this in the theater uh, with my family, with my group of friends, I saw it with a friend of mine, Daisy. Uh, uh, she, there's this moment, uh, this, this happens in the film and I'm just in shock watching it. Like, yeah, sure. We all knew they were going to come back in, a year in Endgame or whatever, but for me to see Spider-Man, for me to see Bucky, for me to see uh, absolutely everyone who's uh, the 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 MCU was a massive part of my movie watching uh, and upbringing and and seeing all of these characters quite literally bite the dust just broke me. Uh, this. Uh, the lack of a score from uh, Silvestri, uh, the just the sheer just shock of of the scene, and when everything is done, uh, I can't remember who who says it, but someone says Steve or something, and he goes, "Oh God, he he has nothing else to say. He they've lost. This has never this hasn't happened to the Avengers, and it's the darkest moment in in the MCU." Uh, to that point and it's just it really impacted me and uh it and even still uh yeah i know it's been memed to death but spider-man's i don't want to go still impacts me to this day uh i love this scene so much uh i, I never go tired of it and yeah yeah i i mean i put it in 90 i i think infinity war is like miles better than Endgame, I really do. I, I I I understand there's different points for everybody, but like Infinity, like the main the main dragon point for Infinity War is like, well, they all come back, so it loses all its effect. It really doesn't because the story is like five years later. These people really did lose the time of their life and had to go on without them. Um, I think it's just impact. I think it's just it, it's the culmination of something, whether you like it or not. But no other thing has ever completed what this movie, this, this uh, franchise was able to complete. An overarching arc that came to over 20 movies that met to this one. They may not be everybody's cup of tea. They may, most of them might be people's cup of tea. But the end of the scene when he's basically on his rampage, which also the Thanos in Infinity War is miles better than the Thanos, like the character development in the end game, which is wild. Um, He's basically gets through everything. He's tearing through everybody. He's pushing through. The Avengers have been able to take out everybody in the movie. And uh, she shatters the stone and he rewinds it. And it's just like, one of the helpless feelings in a movie, even if you know what's coming, is just like helpful, helpless. And then Thor coming in and dropping, you know, when he drops the axe on him, it's like he should have went for the head. It's just one of like the most badass lines where you have a ch uh, <laughs> an axe buried in your chest and like, yeah, you, you fucked up. You could have killed me if you went to the head. Um, I just think it's great. I put it at 90 because I think it has, like, I think there's just, it's a scene that everybody talks about, but overall I think it deserves a spot on the list for sure. Yeah, it's a well done scene and, you know, I've talked about my disdain for Bucky on the show already. And I remember watching this in the theater before I realized what was happening, and I just saw Bucky dying. I was like, "Yes!" But then, uh, 
everybody else started to go too. And I figured out. I'm like, oh, that kind of sucks. Well, he should be Captain America. Um, okay. He should be okay. sitting in a cave somewhere in Russia. Or no, uh, he um, has super serum. Falcon's going to get killed at the moment he flies anywhere. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it is the big, the, 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 the big killer on this for me is like the fact that, okay, they're not staying dead. Like, I remember in the theater, there were like a couple of teenage girls cried over Peter Parker dying. And I'm like, you know, he's under contract for three more movies, right? He's, he's not staying I was dead. One of them. And I think, I think, I think that, um, I, I think that it, the, the, the impact doesn't come until Endgame and it comes up five years later. And you, then you realize that, okay, yeah, there's like real consequences and real loss involved here. No matter what happens from this point on, like there, th- this had an impact. And I think to the detriment of the MCU, to be honest, because I don't think, I think the problem with the MCU since this is trying to contend with what happened. I don't think it's been fun to watch, to be honest. Um, so I don't, I, I don't like the fallout of this for, for, for the rest of the MCU, but um yeah, I, th- I think Endgame is where you really feel the impact of it. I don't think you feel it in this scene necessarily. I mean, in it, within the movie, obviously, but in the grand scale of things, knowing what you know as a viewer, it didn't have that much impact for me. But again, within the story, very well told story. The fact, like you said, that they lost and you know that they have they have to try to figure out what to do from there. And then you know Thanos after that, just kind of like really you know taking his time, like just sitting and enjoying what he's done. Uh, Scott and Jake, two huge MCU fans. Uh, why did you have this one on your on your list? Go ahead, Jake. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just say that I do like the scene, and I do like Infinity War. It's like one of my favorite MCU movies, I guess you could say. Um, it is. I, I don't. I know people like to make the argument. Well, I know everyone is going to come back. You know, it's the whole sort of thing. Oh, there's everyone sends a dust up, but they're going to come back. You know, it's all this stuff. Like, no one never stays dead. I mean. I feel like sometimes that doesn't really matter. Like the sequence of events, you, that's like the enjoyment of the movie. Like, you know, I, I don't just watch Spider-Man because I don't know if he's going to live or die at the very end of, you know, the first or first, or even Spider-Man 2 and 3 and all that sort of stuff. I like to watch it because I just like to watch the sequence of events. Same way I like to watch this movie. Um, it's, yeah, it's a really good scene. I just like the fact that this is like a somewhat of a, this is the Thanos movie, and I like that this is sort of the part of it for him when he has that little dream sequence with, um, or like, you know, that little sequence with uh, young Gamora, and just like, did you do it? Yes. What did it cost? And for him, it was everything to do everything. this. And I think that's actually a really effective uh, effective moment. Um, yeah, I think it's a good scene, but I do think for you. Like, if, if people are going to criticize me for having, like, Spider-Man scenes really high and all that sort of stuff, I'm going to say, like, I do think this is very, very high. Not even comparable, my friend. <laughs> Because one movie's clearly better, yeah. Um, yeah, Columbus, I, keep talking. Look, I think that, yes, I agree that the ultimate payoff was very satisfying of bringing everyone, the way that they brought everyone back was very satisfying. Um, but that's a different movie. And I still think, like, in this movie, yes, that I can't, even watching it in theaters, I was like, well, they're all coming back. Like, I did have that um, attitude. It does take some of it to take something out of it for me. And even now looking, looking back in, in retrospect, I feel like it even comes off worse because it just feels like uh, a, an encapsulation of where we are in terms of franchise hell at this point of just, we're bringing all, you know, we're bringing everything back, like w- imaginary stakes, right? No one is ever actually really dead. 
um, we're just like going to be stuck in nostalgia cycles for so long. And, you know, here we are fast and furious. We're going to bring back, you know, somebody who you thought was dead. Here we are Jurassic park, right? They weren't dead, but we're going to bring back all the old people. Cause that's what you guys want to see. And it's just like, we're never going to actually progress. Um, in cinema if if this is this is where we where we are at and i feel like this is kind of a uh, a perfect encapsulation again of that you know very negative sort of ideology yeah you're right scott i mean we can't i'm not going to uh confine it to this one scene death has absolute no meaning in the entire yeah. mcu and there are no stakes within the mcu at all yeah we, we, prove me wrong yeah, what's, yeah what's is Iron Man back yet? I just read the article. He may be yeah. back for Secret Wars. <laughs> that, that totally no, whatever you read, that's your own fault of bringing into what you can see and who's in contract talks. That's what everybody's thought. Oh, they're contracted. But in the course of the movies, you, you can't just assume you, things beyond the point. think there's not someone in Marvel Studios right now planning the return sure. of Sure. He will come back. Five, because, well, one, I one, I find it laughable that we sit up here and it goes the progression of where cinema's heading. If your measure of cinema through the MCU, they're wiping their tears with their billion dollars. They don't care about cinema. If they did, the Transformers I would never be made or anything. And that's the problem. So the, yeah. But no, that's not the problem. You're, the studios have the studios. The overall big studios have to have these blockbusters, so any producers or anything can produce other films that makes your little indie films that you absolutely love. Like that's the facts of the world. You have to spend the people to get mad because stuff comes on Disney Plus and stuff. They got to pay for the app. You got to do these things. But I'm, I'm not just capitalism. I like watching interesting franchise movies too. Like uh, you hate the MCU. It didn't matter what they did in it. You would have hated it from the start. That's not true. I have never been higher on it coming out. Name one MCU movie you have over four stars. Avengers Endgame. (laughs) The conclusions of the thing for you. Portals. That was earlier. I had portals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I understood. Right. Uh. Then we go to. Uh, oh, this is just perfect. This is the most perfect. This is like the perfect thing of what I'm per on in this freaking show. Um, my 42 is from 1990. It's misery. It's Paul uh, gets back in the room from uh, misery. Because that's what I consider top 100 scenes uh, in misery. Um, yeah. So overall, uh, this is post hobble. This is the post hobble. Um, he wants to explore the house. And the only way he can explore the house is to get her out of the house. Um, he wants to find a way to fuck out of the house. Contact a phone, do something. He's gotta be he's gotta be free to move. So he basically convinces her that he wants to write the book that she wants. But he ha- it has to be a certain type of paper. So she has to drive into town with the snow and everything, and he's out in his wheelchair. He gets through the house. He does everything. He wanders around, um, but he ends up getting out of his chair, like falls out of his chair and up. And the you hear the snow sloshing. The car's coming back in the driveway, so he has to like pull himself into the car. And as she's walking up the stairs, and everything's moving, it is like such an intense like 
she drops the paper, he slams the door, everything is like building this tension. It makes me almost have a panic attack every time I watch it. Um, and then he finally gets in the bedroom before she walks in. It's a brilliant overall like scene. I know there's more iconic from this movie, but this is the one that clearly like the way they're able to build the tension in this is great. Yeah, it's a good scene. Um, it has kind of like that Hitchcockian thing where you know it's it's you know she he's he's getting back in the room and they're cutting to uh, her, um, you know, coming in and I like how they do that. that there's that one part where they cut from you know where he has the the pin where he's trying to lock the door back up so she doesn't know he left and like he sticks the pin in they cut directly her sticking the 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 key in the front door. Um, so there's some cool stuff like that. Um, overall, I didn't think it was that stood out that much from a lot of scenes like that. Like I said, it's driven of like Hitchcock and things like that. I think other movies have done this kind of thing better. Um, not a terrible scene, but I don't know if it's top 100. Uh, Scott and Jake on. We add Jack back in. It looks like he's here. Yeah. Oh. All right. Everybody I haven't else seen on, I haven't on seen Misery. Paul, get back in the room. Um, I like the scene. Um, yeah, it's just like, I don't know. There feels like a lot of I feel like it's better scenes, in my opinion. Um, but I do remember the tension of this being really good. Like the fact that like he's still not in the room when she arrives, and he's got to quickly get back in. Um, that there's just okay. This is my memory is a little fuzzy on the movie. This is bef- this is before the uh, the sledgehammer scene. It's after. It's after. Okay. All right. Because um, he like can't he can't fully like support his weight. Like he has to like drag himself back into the chair and drag himself into bed, and everything hurts because. His ankles are shattered. Yeah. It's crazy. You're great being muted. You're muted. I think he said he hasn't seen it. I haven't seen the movie yet. Okay. Perfect. Uh, Jake, 42. Uh, Okay. Are you guys done with Spider-Man? Yes. Uh, trust me. Are you? There, went, there, there isn't one next week. Um, there will be. We'll have a little bit of a break um, after this one. So, uh, one week. Uh, we've already talked about Spider-Man Two's ending. Um, let's talk about Spider-Man One's ending. Um, ending slash, <laughs> just you know, final swing. I'm counting that with the funeral. Um, at this point, at the end, Goblin's been defeated. Uh, Harry believes Spider-Man has killed his father, um, and he's like, "I'm going to make Spider-Man pay one day." Um, when that sets up this whole overarching storyline in the entire trilogy and even Peter's like in the narrations is like no matter what I do no matter how hard I try the ones I love will always be the ones who pay and I think that's part of why he decides the decision that he makes in the end because this entire movie to me like the central sort of point is Peter wants to be with MJ and he just finally is MJ finally sees Peter for who he is and Peter sees MJ for who she is and they have these moments throughout the movie and at the end, MJ just talks to Peter and says, like, when I was up on the bridge and I thought I was going to die, I was thinking of one person. And it wasn't the person I thought of. And it was you, Peter. There's only been one person who has been by my side, who cares about me. And finally, they kiss Peter Parker and MJ, Mary Jane Watson. They have this moment. And Peter's just like, I just want to tell you. I, I, all I wanted to do was tell her everything. And he's just like, I want you to know I will always be there for you. I will always be your friend. And I'm just, just like, only your friend? And Peter's just like, that's all I have to give. He knows that even though he wants to be with her, since the very beginning of the movie, since they were six, your neighbors and all that sort of stuff, he knows that with great power 
comes great responsibility. It's the reason he has to be Spider-Man. This is the, the, the hard sacrifices that he has to make in order to keep the ones he loves safe. Um, we saw that when Aunt May was attacked by the goblin. Harry now hates Spider-Man because of what happened to his father and the misunderstanding there. And it's just, it's the tough choice that he has to make. And it's the fact that there are people who were like so against that being the choice and Raimi and the writers were so stern of like, we have to go with this because this is going to carry over so well in the next movie. And the fact that he leaves, you have that small little moment when Mary Jane like recognizes the kiss that he got from Peter, that she got from Peter because he had the whole upside down kiss, which is in of itself also just super memorable. And she realizes that I, I, I felt that somewhere. And then you have the the ending monologue that the the, the um, which par parallels the uh, the opening scene of whatever life holds in store for me, I'll never forget these words. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift, my curse. Who am I? I'm Spider Man. Bang! The orchestral music, Danny Elfman swinging through the city, absolutely incredible. I think it was like one of the first visual effect shots in the movie, and it was the very last shot that they finished, uh, triumphantly swinging through the city goes onto the American flag and then swings, bang. And that's when the audience cheers and says, greatest American movie of 2002. And then they maybe made over a hundred million in its opening weekend, shattering box office records and is remembered as one of the greatest movies ever made. I reckon that's uh, that's mm. the truth there. Um, absolutely great ending. Um, people never really don't, people don't really talk about the ending as much as they should. And I think it really just shows like this compared to many endings and, in the fucking MCU, where it's just like we got to tease for the next one, or we're just going to be sudden and just bang, we got we just going to get to the post credit scene. This just really feels like an absolute perfect ending, and I think it's just, it's wonderful, and we should all talk about this more. You were you were so you're on a roll there, Jake, but you kind of fell off the off the cliff there at the end there. <laughs> uh, but um, no, I agree with you. That's the one thing you know. Going back and watching these early two thousands movies, you know, complain what you will, but the fact that they're all like under two hours and you know a sequel's coming, but like the whole point of the movie is not to set up the sequel. Um, it's like its own story. That's that's fun to watch. Um, we've talked a lot about tonight about what I don't like about the Raimi Spider-Man movies. Um, I'll talk about what I do like about them, and especially this movie is how well they nail the exact spirit and idea of the Spider-Man character, and that's encapsulated in the scene where you know it starts out. He's like it's a, you know the beginning of the movie is like it's a story about a girl, and then it ends where he has the opportunity everything he's ever wanted in life is being handed to him on a silver platter and he walks away from it. I remember sitting in the, and, and, and when he walked away from it in the first time, I, was, I, I stood up and cheered for that moment. Cause like that is Spider-Man. That is exactly what Spider-Man did. Compare that to the ending of amazing Spider-Man where <laughs> I wanted to like Don't burn the theater down too. after that. Um, this kind. Uh, yeah, I, I promise psych. Um, <laughs> that was just that, that sucked. Um, but no, this is, again, if you're going to put a Spider-Man scene, uh, this this is the one to do because, like I said, it, it, it this I think I said this for a while. As much as I complain about these movies, I think Raimi Spider Man does a better job of capturing the spirit of their character uh, better than any superhero movie ever does. I think you know whether you complain about the acting, the writing, whatever, they know the essentials of the essence of what this character is and they, and they, and they live by it. So um, yeah, great ending for this movie. And like I said, for a Spider-Man pick, very solid. Uh, everybody else on this one. Great ending. Uh, one of the best uh, superhero endings ever. Uh, yeah, I know, but I think you got the quote wrong. Cause I did read your, uh, your superhero movie review, but 
that's that's fine. Uh, great power comes great responsibility is good is good too. Um, yeah, I, we talked about how the ending of Spider Man Two is like a super hell yeah moment. Honestly, this is too, and especially that score playing like it's so epic um, when he's just swinging there um, at the end. And, and I do like that. Um, like Kirk was kind of saying that you know. Obviously, they made an amazing sequel, but the movie could have ended there with him saying, I'm Spider-Man. And it's like, OK, great. We did it like there there didn't need to be anything else. Like it was it was a great movie on its own and it had a beginning, middle and end, um, which <coughs> feels like a foreign concept now. <coughs> great, great pick. Great pick. You've said everything. I don't know if I can add anymore. All right, uh, that was your four, uh, 42. So, Scott, what is your 42? All right, it's time for my submission to the diner scene uh, canon. Uh, this is the diner scene from Seven, which we've already talked about tonight. Um, yeah, this might not be the scene that people think of, again, when they think of Seven, but for me, I love Morgan Freeman's performance. It's my favorite performance of his. And I love sort of the psychology of what's going on with his character versus John Doe. And the fact that they actually have a pretty similar outlook on the world of like being sort of disgusted um, with the moral depra depravity that they see um, going on in the world. They obviously just have very different ways of responding to it. But this is the scene where he's with Tracy, Gwyneth Paltrow's character. Um, and she is sort of asking him for advice and she starts off by asking him about, uh, you know, the fact that she's having a child, uh, that she's pregnant and, you know, what to do, um, because the world is a terrible place. And, um, and he breaks into this story, Somerset breaks into this story about how, um, he was with a woman once and they got pregnant and, um, she he eventually was like i can't bring a child into this world like there's you know it's it's too dark of a place and he wore her down and convinced her to you know terminate the pregnancy and he says that line of like um i know i made the right choice but there's not a day that goes by where i wish i had made it um which is such an interesting like there's so much i feel like packed in that um single line of like you know knowing he was right to not bring a child into the world but also wishing he could have those feelings of like being a parent um and and then he says to her like um you know if you decide to not have the child do not ever tell him uh because you don't want him to live with basically what i've had to live with now but if you do have um if you do decide to have the child and he's like you spoil that child um, you know, is, is basically the line he says. And Gwyneth Paltrow has a nice moment too of like when he says you spoil um, that child, she like breaks down. Um, and so it's, you know, again, you don't think about sort of the quiet scenes in this movie of like conversations between characters, but I love seeing that, especially from the Somerset character, who again, I think is the most interesting character in the movie um seeing sort of the how he's still haunted by that decision that he's made um and he's you know it continues and in, into you know the fact that he's leaving being a detective because he's so you know disgusted with the world around him and doesn't think he can change it anymore 
Um, and so, you know, there's a lot going on in this movie. It's not just like a, you know, entertaining serial killer movie. I think the themes at play are really interesting as well. Yeah, I think um, I like the relationship between the for the bond that forms between these two characters in this movie um, because he's so jaded and she's so not to the point where she can't even see how jaded he is. Like she doesn't even understand that. And he looks at her and I think he sees like some spark of goodness in the world. And, you know, that just has such a big impact, obviously, on how the movie ends. Um, but I, th- and I think, I, I mean, I think a lot of people say that Gwyneth's the weakest part of this movie and, you know, maybe she is. Um, but I mean, that doesn't make her bad. Like there's just a lot of good things in this movie, but I think her relationship, her chemistry with Bad Pitt and also with uh, Morgan Freeman, I think, is really strong. Like you said, I think she, the, the, just the two um, very different type of people they are coming together and forming that relationship is a lot of fun to watch. And it makes, like I said, the ending so much more devastating. Uh, everybody else on the diner scene in Seven. It's been a while since I've seen Seven, as I talked about with the, uh, the other scene. Um, but uh, I... I remember parts of the scene. Like I remember, this is the whole conversation that um, that Tracy has with um, it's Somerset, yeah, yeah, Somerset, and um, it's just it's been a while. I don't really exactly remember specifics and like the scene of itself. It has been like almost ten years since I've seen this movie. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's a good scene though. Great scene. Uh, not not no not the one I would have picked, but uh, yeah, I know I do quite enjoy this one. So good job, Scott. Uh, I said three scenes. Um, this is one of the three scenes that I would have included. Um, I just think they're overall so strong, and I think this is one of them. Still, there's two other scenes that are put higher than this one, but overall, I think it's a really great scene. All right. Uh, that was Scott's 42. So, final picks of the night. Jack, 41. Uh, I'm going with my 41 is one of the greatest endings in film history. Uh, Yeah, I know, Cody. It's the Statue of Liberty from Planet of the Apes, 1968. The first time I saw this movie, it was me, my brother, and my Nana. I had never uh, found anything out about this movie. I was clueless about the ending. Uh, And I was like 12, somewhere around there. Uh, And the moment that happened, I got chills. the you the charlton heston's just outburst of just pure agony and despair when he screams you maniacs you blew it up god damn you all to hell uh it's one of the best finales to a film ever uh it's uh i love this movie more times every time i watch it and this is the perfect way to end it uh I I can't say enough about the scene. It's been talked to death, but no, it's a it's a truly phenomenal moment for, for me. This is another one of those ones that's been parodied to death, um, so it's really hard to appreciate the original. Um, but I still do. I love it. I think it's just a really well not even just the 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 actual like stinger at the end, but I think it's just a really well crafted scene with the score and the way it's shot from you know behind the trees. You're watching it on the beach. Um, I think it's just a really good way of you know building up that tension. You know what you you kind of you kind of think like they've won and they're and they're going to go, but like 
you know, the movie's telling you that there's more to come. And then you see that just the way it comes up. Oh, it's like an over the shoulder shot from the statues, you know, over the statue's shoulder. You just see him looking in that devastation. Um, so, yeah, I think this is still a great scene. You know, Rod Serling's script, you know, it's kind of stuff you're going to get from him. So, um, solid pick, good pick. Uh, everybody else on uh, 68 Planet of the Apes, I mean. Talk about a, a movie that I would love to rewatch, knowing absolutely like nothing about. This is a movie that unfortunately has been ruined by pop culture. Um, it's yeah, it's just one of the things where I've seen the movie, yet I feel like I never knew I'd already seen it, just based on everything that has been talked about with this movie and in pop culture and the the twist, which is one of the greatest twists ever. I absolutely agree with that, but I just don't have that impact because I knew the twists. It's like I am your father. It's that sort of twist. It's just one where everyone knows, even if you haven't seen the movie, you know a good 50, 60, 70% of this movie. I do like sort of the setup beforehand when Doc, I think it's Dr. Zayas is like, if you, when you, wherever you go, you might not find what you're looking, you might not like what you find, um, something like that. And I just think that was just really cool, that sort of setup. And then Statue of Liberty, it's in the future. They blew it up, damn you, what the hell. Never seen it. This movie is fine. At the end of the day, I, I think overall the movie's fine. I think the scene gets way too much credit. I guess, I guess for the time, had to just blow people away. But if you got to this past sixty-eight, <laughs> like you knew everything about this. I'm surprised at twelve you didn't know stuff about this. Like it's just in every it's been parodied to absolute death. So that's why I couldn't even consider it on my list because I don't even believe the scene belongs to it anymore. <laughs> like I believe it's been parodied more than like than that. So overall that's my thoughts on it. But you had the opening screen on your list. Yeah, I did. All right. Well, give opening us your, the scream is better than this by give, far. Give us your uh, number forty-one. Um, my forty-one is some consider the greatest movie of all time. Um, uh, the Shawshank Redemption, uh, and it's the music over the speaker. There's a lot you can choose for Shawshank. Uh, this is gonna be awkward. Give me one second. We're losing everybody. <laughs> Sorry, I just uh, had to cam off for a sec. You're fine. I'm good now. <laughs> my children like to protect my house and lock my door, and then my wife is coming in, and I know she doesn't have the key to that door, so it was going to be rough. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to have to have a war, and we're living. No, there's a lot of scenes that you can pick from the Shawshank Redemption. I think there are a bunch, and I can justify a lot of them. This is one that I don't think gets talked about enough. Um, and the music over the loudspeaker is definitely um, one of those scenes. Um, I think how it's shot, how the music is played, how Morgan Freeman's uh, narration over the scene builds to it. He's like, I love the line where he's like, to this day, I don't know what those two Italian ladies are singing about. Uh, and I think that's the greatest thing about not knowing what they were thinking. I think it's something higher than what we can even describe. Like, <clears throat> but I know for a moment, everybody stood still and everything was magnified. Those speakers were as clear and we floated above where we were. I think it's just like the thought of being in prison for most of those people for a long period of their life <clears throat> and to get none of that. 
and then something out of the ordinary plays and everybody freezes. And at that point in time, no one has it better because I believe this is after the the sisters get taken out like and get carted away. So he is like in the office working the books, lives the best life, doing taxes for everybody. He does not have to do this move right here to save his lot. Like so when he puts up a loudspeaker and by far my favorite acting performance in this entire movie is the warden. I think the warden is by far incredible throughout this movie. And when he shows up, he's like, turn it off, turn that shit off. And then Clancy Brown, of course, is like there. And he just turns it up. And then you just see Clancy Brown on the thing. Your mind, Dufresne. And you hear the crack. And then the the perfect like record scratch of it and then just stops. He spent two weeks in the hole for that stunt. Like gave up everything for everybody to have a little glimpse of like like you're a human being. I think it's just such a powerful scene. I had to include it. I love this movie. I think it's brilliant. Does it deserve all the hype it gets? Probably probably not. But overall, when I watch it, I, I'm enthralled. So that's my support. Uh, I disagree with you. I do think it deserves all the hype it gets. Uh, this is a fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. This is um, it's so good. I, I, Morgan Freeman is the all-time king of the voiceover, and <laughs> he is done. I think that's my favorite line. This day, I don't know what those two Italian ladies are talking about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Um, that's uh, just just him, like you said, like just like, and it's almost Capra esque in the fact that like it should be cheesy that all these like hardened criminals are just sitting there listening, you know, just stop everything or like kind of like drift off listening to music, but you buy it. You completely buy it just cause of everything Andy's done, you know, just this kind of like Andy's whole story. The Freeman voice, uh, you know, narration is, is, you know, you just, you just completely buy into it. You're like, yeah, and you understand exactly why they feel that way. Um, and yeah, the way he plays that when, you know, the, the warden is knock on the door and he reaches out and, he gets that little grin on his face and he's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to twist the knife a little deeper. And then, you know, uh, Hadley comes, he's like, it's my turn. And you see, you see the grin kind of just go away, but he's still like, kind of like enjoy, like, it, you know, he hasn't looked at it totally worth it. You know, whatever happens from here, it was totally worth it. Um, so yeah, this is fantastic. Um, two scenes probably from Shawshank I would pick. This is definitely one of them. Definitely would make my top 100. Great pick. Uh, nobody else had it. Tell me why. Uh, I need to get lost. Okay, I guess I'll start. Uh, this was barely this barely missed the list. Uh, Shawshank is one of my ten favorite films of all time, and for the longest time, this was on the list. But uh, there's one scene uh, I would put above it. Uh, Truly incredible moment, and yeah, no, great pick, Cody. Yeah, I actually don't have any scenes from the movie, despite loving it, too. And yeah, this is definitely a great pick, even though it's like a kind of a cliched setup of like, you know, the the problem kid or whatever breaks into the principal's office and like plays punk rock over the loudspeakers. I think because of the uh, setting and, you know, all of the sort of context that we're talking about with the scene. Um, it 
becomes less of like an i mean it is an act of rebellion of course but like you just kind of appreciate the beauty of the moment and um the fleeting nature of it given again that they're in prison um so i think it's like one of the best spins on that um kind of trope that we've seen before absolutely fantastic scene um i think having a scene from the shawshank redemption at at number 41 is brilliant and i feel like more people should every person should have a scene from the shawshank redemption oh, at number 41. um i think this is a perfect choice cody um it's definitely a great scene but having this movie be number 41 i think is perfect <laughs> all right uh jake what is your number 41 I really hope I don't get yikes because I'm picking Andy's escape from the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> God damn it. God damn it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, you still had the man. moment. Ruined I the had man. the moment. <laughs> I will say that's the other scene. Though. That's those are the That's two. still a super long scene, so I'm interested to see where everything breaks down on that scene, but we'll find out then. All right. Uh, Scott, finish it off with your number one. All right. It's the dinner party from Francis A. Of course, you oh, knew I was going to have a scene from this movie, um, and this is this is the scene um, because it starts off as like you know being Francis being her super awkward self. This is during the time when she's living with Mamie Gummer's character, and she ends up going to this dinner party with a bunch of people who are like much more confident and well put together and everything than she is. Um, and she's just kind of trying to fit in in the conversation and like failing miserably multiple times, like to the point of saying stuff and basically just like dead air from everyone around the table. Um, and this is when she also learns that Sophie, who was her previous best friend and who their breakup kind of like um, is what sets the rest of the movie into action. She finds out that Sophie is moving to Japan with her uh, fiance and hasn't told francis like francis this is how she finds out from these other random people um so there's kind of a heartbreaking element to it as well um and so she's not really fitting in the people are kind of like giving her the side eye a little bit and then it cuts to like a little bit later in the evening and she's going on this sort of monologue about uh this sort of speech about you know when you and she's talking about sophie in particular and it's like when you find the person who is your person right who is like your best friend and this is a great such a great like friendship movie as well um and it's just like a couple minutes of her like unbroken monologuing and you don't see anyone else you just see her and she's being like very open and sincere about everything and and uh, she gets to the end of the monologue it's like okay well see you guys later and like gets up to leave the dinner party and everyone is actually kind of like taken aback and sad all of a sudden that she's leaving uh, because just a few moments ago, like she, you know, was awkward and not fitting in. But now after going on this little speech and they see her sincerity and she's, she wins them over just in the same way that she wins us over, over the course of the movie. Um, and so you get, you know, that it's such an amazing character and performance and you get everything, um, every side of that character within that little stretch of uh, the movie when they're at the dinner party. And obviously it's very funny in the end that she, ends up is like oh yeah i actually am going to paris this weekend like because the one couple has the apartment in paris and she's trying to like fit in again and you know before she leaves she's like oh yeah i'm going to paris this weekend and i will stay at your place thank you of course like she ends up blowing all her money to do it like she 
certainly doesn't have the financial solvency to be doing it. But in that moment, it like seems like the thing to do. So it's a perfect scene. Yeah, I really enjoy this scene. I I, just, I, mean, I, I love this movie and I love this character. Um, and I think this is just such a great character moment for her. Uh, I love the choice in this scene that it would be real easy to make these all like, you know, like stuck up New York yuppies and like turn their nose down at her. Um, but you, you, you get the awkwardness and you get like how like disconnected she is from these people. But at the same time, like you said, they, 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 they see her sincerity and her charm, which is what we see in her and they get it. So, you know, it's kind of like that thing where even though she's not getting what she needs and wants out of life, um, you know, she's kind of lost. Um, people could still appreciate, you know, what she does have to offer and who she is. And I think that's what's so good about this character. Um, and yeah, just her going, just it's so, it's so, you just cringe when she, you know, she's that's when she starts talking about like they're talking about like their lives, their thing. So she starts talking about like friends from college and who dated yeah. who, and it just has nothing to do with it. And everybody just kind of stared at each other and like tolerated her. But you're so embarrassed for her because like it's she's so out of her league, but she's still trying. You respect that, you respect how hard she tries. So it's just a very lovable character, very lovable moment for her. Um, and yeah, the, the, then she, the part where she goes to Paris is just so devastating. Um, Everybody else, who's seen Francis Han? And uh, if you've seen it, what do you guys say about this? Still on my watch list. I really need to say this, considering I'm friends with people like Scott Harvey and Boyama. Um, I will get to this eventually. I'm sorry. Uh, I haven't seen this movie. It's a movie I think I'll really enjoy. Uh, I almost bought, uh, bought it uh, when I went to Barnes & Noble when I was in New York last year. But I didn't. Uh, but I, I do really want to see it. No, no, not not. We have not seen good, it, but yeah, no. not 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 good movie. Not good movie. Um, uh, no, a bomb back. I'm a fan of a lot of it. This one, but I was told by people not to watch this movie, and I watched it anyway. So I saw your review of that. That's really really funny. Yep, Paul, you were right. Sorry. <laughs> well, I think somebody else. I said Paul told me not to, and then somebody on wireless goes, "No, you should give it a shot." They were wrong. Oops, they were wrong. I think it was good. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's the end of our show. I got to name some winners. It's tough this week. And I will be honest with you, it's because nobody had like a really bad list. Everybody had some pretty good picks. Um, this week's winner is actually going to be Scott Harvey. I knew it. Called this. Um, you know, he had, he did get talked about, but he had the whiplash ending, which is like top 10 all time for me. Um, and then he, there's really nothing. He had some strong scenes, nothing really on there that I can complain about or find a whole lot of chinks in his armor there. Um, then it comes down. The next two are close once again. Uh, both had a Fincher, both had a uh, Tarantino diner scene, uh, both had the same Goodwill hunting scene. Uh, but I think for second place, I'm going to go with Cody. Um, Cody had Shawshank uh, and Reservoir Dogs. I don't think Jack really met up with that. Jack had a couple weaknesses on his um, that kind of held his down. Um, but Jack is in third place. Uh, and uh, again, strong list, not bad. It was it was close between those top three. At forty six, hurt you, Jack. Just and, I know uh, it. Did. I know it. And, <laughs> and then uh, Jake, you get fourth. But I'll tell you what, the arrows pointed up. Right. This doesn't um, seem like I came last in a. No, no, this, yes, no. This is yeah. This this your 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 momentum's in the right direction. Keep this up, and hopefully we can have. <sighs> oh, it's going downhill. 
in the last, <laughs> next couple of weeks. Um, but that's it. Uh, longest episode of the series so far. Uh, we'll try and, tighten, try and tighten it up next time. Uh, but thank you all for watching, and uh, hopefully we'll see you next week. Intimidate me. I'm entitled to my opinion. Drunk, get angry. Come on, break the lousy cup. Ow, I hurt my arm. And not expect everybody. Everybody. I'm going there soon, you know. Is that so? Where are you going? Uruguay. Well, you go Uruguay and I'll go mine.